The 200 Level is brought to you by DP Doe, proud supporter of the Illini on campus since 2006. Locally owned and operated and employing a staff that truly cares about their customers, DP Doe will always go out of their way to make sure that every customer walks away happy and full. Stop in and try a hot box, their popular combo featuring a calzone, choice of side, and drink. Sure to be extra tasty beginning January 1st. Order direct online at dpdoe.com for their best deals and prices. Also, Brian Hansen, your State Farm agent and your local choice for insurance. Their team is made up of four local products, all born and raised in Champaign-Urbana. That's Tammy, Kennedy, Molly, and Brian. And their office is located at 408 North Ray Street, Suite A in Urbana, but they service all of Champaign County and East Central Illinois. Here for your auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance needs, give them a call at 217-344-1900 or visit online at brianismyguy.com. And finally, 4th and Kirby with their vintage-inspired Illini apparel, including hats, t-shirts, and a crew neck sweatshirt just in time for basketball season. And now a brand new partnership with the Illini Union Bookstore. Be on the lookout for 4th and Kirby apparel at IUB on campus. That's on Wright Street, just across from the Illini Union in Alt Guild Hall. And uh, something really cool coming up on Cyber Monday, a lot of specials at 4thandkirby.com. Be sure to check it out just in time for Illinois' final home game against Northwestern. Also, our partnership with IlliniInquirer.com and Champagne Showers Podcast Network. This is a unique episode of the 200 level and that we don't have a game to react to it is our bi-week extravaganza gonna have some fun with trevor valise and a special interview with chuck aplinski we're gonna talk movies we'll switch it up but first things first we are an alani football and basketball podcast we'll start with that and then work our way into other topics just in time for a huge game against iowa it is the 200 level It is the 200 level live from the basement. Mike Carpenter for episode 48. As of yet, untitled as I record this on Sunday morning. Maybe it's just bi week extravaganza or something like that. Uh, we are switching some things up. We got Trevor Valise in just a bit, and then we're going to end with a really cool interview that I did with Chuck Aplinski about movies. I'm a huge movie fan, and we got into some of the nitty gritty about film, cinema, if you want to call it that. But a lot of cool topics, including the new Martin Scorsese movie coming out, The Irishman. We talked about the Marvel movies that Scorsese had been kind of criticizing for their lack of cinematic quality. Really good conversation about that. And uh, you you name the movie, you name the director, we probably touched on it at some point. So that is something I wanted to try for a bye week, but this is an Illini Sports Podcast, and we will keep it that way for the majority of this episode. It was a really interesting Saturday as I turned on the TV, Michigan State and Michigan being the first game that I watched, and was able to watch other Big Ten football games with this weird sort of uh, contentedness knowing that Illinois was going to make a bowl game, that we had nothing to worry about, and that we had a bye week to sort of just revel in our success. And this was a a position I don't think we've been in probably since the Rose Bowl year, but I don't think there was a bye week late in that year. That's what makes this unique, is not only did you beat Michigan State and get to enjoy that comeback victory, and certainly people did. If you went on Twitter throughout the week, Illinois athletics, Illinois football, and uh, a lot of different uh, fan sites and uh, media members, rightfully so, were sending out and retweeting all these videos from last Saturday's win, which to me feels like a month ago. It does certainly uh, not feel like it was just yesterday. It feels like a month ago that that game happened. Even yesterday as I'm watching Michigan State get pummeled by Michigan, as I watch Nebraska look bad again against Wisconsin, and then you see 
Well, the game of the day, Minnesota-Iowa, where the Hawkeyes looked like Kirk Francis teams tend to look in November, which certainly makes this game coming up Saturday a little bit more, um, I wouldn't say nerve-wracking, because that's the great thing. It's not nerve-wracking. You really are going in with house money, but this does seem to be a much taller task than when you went to Michigan State. Michigan State was already beginning to flounder. You look at Iowa, they're beginning to play better. October seemed to be their swoon, and right now they're looking like a complete team. Nate Stanley making just enough plays for that offense. Uh, but I do think there's an opening here on Saturday for Illinois and Iowa. I think if you look uh, especially at the yards that Minnesota were able to gain, it really just came down to a lack of execution in the red zone. I think Illinois could face something similar on Saturday where they will be able to move the ball to an extent, probably not a 500-yard performance, though I don't know if this offense the last time they did that. But I do think that they can make enough big plays to keep this thing interesting. To me, the concern is actually more to do with Nate Stanley and that Iowa offense uh, beginning to look a little bit more like their September selves. And I mentioned the word October swoon. I don't know. I'd have to look back on Kirk Francis' history and see how his teams play by the month. But it certainly seems to me like in November, they are at their best. Another nine-win sort of campaign for Kirk Francis seems entirely possible. And I went back and looked at his coaching record. His first year, one win. His second year, three wins. And I think from then on, they've made 18 of 19 bowl games. So if you want to talk about a template of success, you would look at Iowa more than you would a Michigan-Ohio State. And I think Illinois fans have often mentioned the Iowas or the Michigan States of the world as, well, let's do that. We don't even need Wisconsin levels of success. Give us Iowa. Uh, But quietly, yet again, a good season for Iowa. And it sets up for what I think will probably be a couple touchdown spread from Vegas. That should be coming out shortly as I record this on a Sunday morning. But I don't think it's going to be that close of a spread, considering that Michigan State was, I think, 14 and a half by the time that game kicked off. What does it mean for this Illinois team, and what do they have to do to win it? A lot of things will have to go right. A lot of things went right against Michigan State, but the difference there is that a lot of things went wrong as well. So like, they balanced out just enough for Illinois to sneak out with a win at East Lansing. This game at Iowa seems much more like you need a very clean performance. You cannot afford to go down 28-3 to against Iowa. It's not going to happen. Uh, because more than just their defense being able to hold you at bay, if they got a lead like that, I look at an offense that's capable of stretching it out if they needed to. But what I do like, and I mentioned this in last week's podcast, is the timing of it seems to work in Illinois' favor. You do get Iowa after what was a very emotional home win. I was just happy that Minnesota actually made it a game in the second half that kind of kept Iowa on their toes. My fear was that Iowa was going to go off and win that game by 17, 20 points and then effectively not have to use much from the reserves, right? They wouldn't have to really tap into much more energy than necessary. But instead, we had a game that in the fourth quarter was really tight. And Minnesota, for a few moments there, it looked like they were going to complete the comeback and continue this crazy season that they're on. Instead, Iowa gets the emotional win. I don't know how much of a difference it makes, whether or not Iowa would have won or lost, you know, what is better for Illinois heading into this matchup. But I still think that the timing of it lends itself to a possible kind of sleepwalk through the game. Not saying the Kirk Francis teams do that much. They probably don't do it much at all, especially this late in the year. But I do think there might be that sliver of an opportunity where you can go in there early on a Saturday morning in Iowa City and try to catch them snoozing. What will I look for? If Illinois doesn't win, in other words, is there such a thing as a quality loss? I think so. I do think so at this point. And I would have said the same thing before Michigan State, though when you get out to a 28-3 deficit, no one was feeling good about a quality loss at that point. Against Iowa, I I want competitiveness again. I don't want this game to get outside of a two-score margin. And 
if anything, I would take a 2015-like result. That was the last time that I went to Iowa City. Unfortunately, not going to make it up this weekend, but went to the game in Cubit season where Illinois was 4-1. and one. We had done a J game day live from their brothers in Iowa City that Friday. Awesome weekend. Absolutely beautiful day for a game. And me and my friend Kenton went to the game as Lon. He, he kind of ambles off to a sports bar and, of course, makes friends with everybody in Iowa City. But that was one that was within a score for the most part. And Illinois in the fourth quarter was making a drive to take the lead. West Lawn, it was his best game as in line. He was tremendous. And there were a couple blunders from Cubit uh, play calling wise in that game, including a wide receiver pass from Geronimo to I forget who he was even throwing to intercepted. And then Keyshawn Vaughn, who had pretty clearly been concussed earlier in that game. He goes out there late in the fourth quarter. He fumbles it. Iowa goes down and I think wraps it up with maybe one more score, a field goal or touchdown. But that was one where I left and thought, okay, well, this is still a pretty good team. Granted, that Cubit team only won one more game. And I think people tend to forget how disappointing that second half of that season was. But they were 4-2 and two, and you were feeling good about things. I think there's certainly a way to walk out of Iowa City at 6-5 and five and still feel good about the progress that Lovey Smith and this team have made. And you have Northwestern coming in the week after that, which will always inspire a little bit of anxiety from me just because Pat Fitzgerald tends to get his guys up for that Illinois-Northwestern game. But despite their blowout win against UMass, the worst team in FBS yesterday, I don't look at Northwestern as a team that should beat Illinois as long as Illinois just doesn't shoot themselves in the foot multiple times. That should be a win to get you to seven wins on the season. But here's the fun thing. Yesterday on Twitter, during all these Big Ten games, I'm seeing all the scenarios play out about, well, we need these things to happen for Illinois to make the Big Ten West title game. And then I saw Trevor make an interesting point that we'll talk about, that if you root for one result, which is Illinois and that 0.1% chance they make the Big Ten championship game, uh, you are actually maybe hurting Illinois' bowl positioning. Okay, In other words, the teams that Illinois needed to win on Saturday in order to set themselves up for a possible Big Ten West berth. Those teams won, but they're also jockeying for the same sort of bowls that you are. Illinois has probably played themselves out of the Quick Lane Bowl as long as they beat Northwestern, so that's the good news if you don't want to go to Detroit. But for the Pinstripe Bowl and the Red Box Bowl, these are where Illinois is in the middle tier. Someone responded to Trevor, and I, I had to think about it myself, but someone responded to Trevor, and I tend to agree with, bowl positioning doesn't really mean anything unless we're talking like a New Year's Day bowl. And I even replied to Trevor saying, if we're talking outback bowl, I'm all about that bowl positioning. But I don't think that's probably in the cards just because you have Ohio State likely going to the college football playoff. You have Michigan and Penn State in front of you. You have Wisconsin, as long as they take care of business, still in front of you. And Minnesota, if they get one more win, still in front of you. That might be discounting a few other teams as well. So Technically, you are not going to get out of that middle tier. So yeah, why not? Let's get some chaos going here and maybe get Illinois in position to sneak into the Big Ten West title game, which as I say this in mid-November, it sounds ludicrous coming out of my mouth, but hey, whatever, that's been that kind of year. So everything happened that Illinois needed to stay alive, except for Wisconsin losing in Nebraska. The one little glimmer here, we need Minnesota to lose out. And I don't know if you're going to get that, though it will be interesting at Northwestern after two consecutive emotional uh, games for Minnesota. One emotional win, one emotional loss. How do they respond on, if there's something about Ryan Field and Evanston that can just make teams sort of sleepwalk for those 60 minutes. And then you look at Wisconsin. Well, they now need to lose to Purdue. 
And I don't know if Purdue is playing at a level that's going to beat Wisconsin right now, though we've seen Jeff Brom and those teams pull off crazier upsets before. And then you also need, uh, let's see here, Minnesota to lose out. You need Wisconsin to lose to Purdue. And of course, you need to win out yourself. How likely is that? Not very. But it's crazy that we're sitting here with an actual path. And you could make arguments that, well, if this happens and this happens. Most importantly, though, it comes down to Illinois winning on Saturday. And that is an early game on Saturday where if that doesn't happen, then all bets are off. As I look at the lineup of games on Saturday, it looks like the early stuff is Michigan State at Rutgers oof, uh, at 11 a.m. on Saturday. Illinois at Iowa also at 11. And then Penn State, Ohio State, of course, being the big one. Those two other games at 11 o'clock have no effect on Illinois and their outside shot to make the Big Ten title game. But then in the afternoon, you got Minnesota Northwestern. I'm pretty sure that's a 2.30 game. It's still listed as TBD here. Purdue-Wisconsin would be, I think, a 3 o'clock start on ABC, perhaps. Those are the two games that you're looking at after you would have presumably won hmm, at Iowa City. Iowa looks to probably be a top... I don't know, 16, 17 in the rankings when all said and done as you enter this game. And if you look at the 2019 season overall and the quality wins that you have, Wisconsin is certainly the highest quality win. Michigan State, just because of the circumstances and the fact that it was a road game, but just because Michigan State lost at Michigan 44 to 10 yesterday, I don't necessarily look at that as any less of a quality win for Illinois because of the comeback, because it was on the road against a team that had a lot more pedigree in the Big Ten than you did. So here we go. We have a chance for what I would call the third quality win on the season, the second quality win on the road, and it would certainly cast the season in an entirely different light. What we're in a position now is there's not any chance of this being disappointing unless they lose to Northwestern. And yes, technically you'd still be 6-6, six and six, but no one would feel good about that. But as long as you beat Northwestern, we can take the word disappointing and throw it out the window. We wouldn't use that for this season, despite the 2-4 and four start. So no matter what, you're feeling good as long as you get that 7th win. You get the 8th win against Iowa, and all of a sudden we're looking at conversations of actually, have we turned the corner? I know those conversations have begun. But with this bye week, two things happened for me as a fan. One, I was able to enjoy the fact that we're already bowl eligible, and I got nothing to worry about, right? I'm feeling good. The other is that with more time away from that Michigan State game and realizing every ingredient that went into that comeback, you are reminded that there are still flaws with this team. And we know that. That is stating the obvious that this is not a perfect team and that there are certain areas uh, of weakness, areas where they are very vulnerable against better football teams. And that can carry over into 2020 as well, despite a schedule that you feel really good about in Lovey's fifth year. But I think the Iowa game all of a sudden would cast this in a different light. That really, they have turned the corner. And yes, there were some ugly moments in there. The first half of Michigan State being one. The first half against Rutgers being another. Where I think a lot of Illini fans, or really maybe even the general public, and Vegas for that matter, as they set the spreads, they aren't convinced. They are not yet convinced even after that Michigan State game. And I get it. As an Illini fan, that creeping doubt uh, is never that far away. I do think the Iowa game, though, if there is such a thing as a quality loss, you could take a 23-17 to loss at Iowa City and not feel as if you've taken any steps back and feel just as good entering that Northwestern game. One more ingredient that Trevor mentioned last week on the podcast that I also agree with is that the 63-0 to loss last year, and I was at that game, maybe, I mean, there were less than 20,000 people in the stadium on a really nasty November day. It was rainy, it was wet. And maybe of those 20,000 people or so in the stadium, 
half of them were Iowa fans. And it was really depressing. I think it was already 35 nothing before the first half ended, if not 42 nothing. And I left after the fourth or fifth touchdown when it was clear that Illinois was just checked out. They weren't into that game. So if there is such a thing as, you know, fuel to the fire, fodder that Illinois can use in the locker room to get pumped up for this game, I think 63 nothing would be one that you plaster all on the bulletin board. You remind the team this is what happened to us last year. I don't know if Lovey's much of that rah-rah kind of guy that uses bulletin board material. But the way that he has talked in press conferences before this year, the way that Rod Smith has addressed fans, which we, of course, addressed here on the 200 level, there is a chip on their shoulder kind of mentality that this team has had. And to an extent, I understand that. When you have had a lack of success and you feel the walls closing in, then you finally have it, you are going to probably point at the nearest person and say, ha, told you so. Just because, you know, these guys, the coaching staff, the players, they've been going through this process and they have been starved for actual success. Now that they have it, will they keep that chip on their shoulder? I'm okay with it. As long as Rod Smith isn't tweeting out at fans and saying, go root for the team up north, I'm okay with them maintaining that sort of bulletin board material, uh, coach them up or coach speak, rally the troops sort of thing in order to get any extra advantage that you can in a game that is probably not carrying a lot of advantages for Illinois at Iowa. My prediction, off the bat, I don't see the upset victory at Iowa City. I'm intrigued. I'm excited to watch it on Saturday. I'm excited to watch it with ease, without that anxiety of, oh, God, we're 5-5 five and five looking for that sixth win. And this is why that Michigan State game was huge, not just for the Northwestern game. As we talked about last week, you don't want to enter that Northwestern game needing it for bowl eligibility because then you can play tight. Whew. You took care of that. No worries. But even for this Iowa game, I think going to Iowa, needing that six win, casts an entirely different light on this game. Worst to Illinois' advantage. You got your six wins in your back pocket. You're going bowling no matter what. And this game at Iowa is really a cherry on top. Do the players consider it as much? No, I think they probably want to win a little bit more than I do as a fan. right? I mean, I would be over the moon, but I have to think they aren't saying in the locker room, eh, whatever. Let's go see what happens. But they will get a play loose. And if they get an early score, I think that's when things get interesting. The one thing, I, I love the comeback in Michigan State, but for the sake of measuring progress, I would have liked to have seen Illinois get an early score in that game and then play with the lead and use this sort of lovey template. We can talk about lovey ball and how you win games. What is not a part of that formula is going down 28-3. to But what the Michigan State game was was very similar to Lovey's team with the Bears in 06. Monday Night Football at Arizona, getting pummeled, a bunch of turnovers offensively by Rex Grossman, and then in turn, the defense causes a bunch of turnovers to get back in the game. Devin Hester has a return for a score, and you somehow snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. That game was over, and then the Bears came back and won it. Same with the game at Michigan State. But if you look back at that 06 Bears team, or really any team that Lovey had success with up in Chicago, and you look at what has made this team and this run possible, it has been either taking an early lead or keeping things close enough to the best where the defense can do lovey things, get their three takeaways a game, which I wouldn't be surprised if they get another two or three up at Iowa City. That's just what they're doing right now. Until I see Illinois not get takeaways, I'm going to assume they'll get them. But I would love to see them play with a lead and have to act like the team that's been there before. I know they haven't. I know it's a four-game win streak, and we're riding that wave, and, and certainly things can come to a thudding halt up at Iowa City with, you know, the Hawkeyes winning by three scores or something like that. But give me, give me something that looks like Illinois belongs on the field with Iowa, and then I'm feeling really good entering Northwestern, and then we get a whole month. You thought the bye week was fun? 
you know, a bye week where you are already six and four, knowing you're going to a bowl, pretty soon you're going to have that entire feeling for the month of December. Again, if you beat Northwestern, which I think you will, but you get to have that feeling of the bye week feeling we just had for an entire month. I can't wait for that. You get your bowl apparel, you get your commemorative bowl mug, the ones that have the logo on the front and on the back, they have all the season results. For a seven and five team, assuming they beat Northwestern, or for an eight and four team, if they beat Iowa and somehow win the last six games of the year to get their eighth win. Uh, this is uncharted waters as an Illini fan. It's been since 2011 that I've had a feeling like this because the 2014 team we had all checked out on. We were done with Beckman, as evidenced by the 14,000 people that were there when David Reisner kicked uh, the game winner against Penn State. People were checked out, and understandably so. That was different. 2011, you won the first six games, you lost the last, last six. That was different. 2010, you never won more than two games in a row, and you had some disappointing losses for a team that probably should have won eight or nine games. That was different. You have to go probably back to 2007 when you were able to ride a wave like this. Enjoy it, and let's see what happens at Iowa City. Now, one unique thing for the 200 level, of course, is coming out early in the week, we will sometimes run into Illinois basketball games that will render the episode not so timely. Illinois plays Hawaii on Monday as they get back from what I guess would be an eight-day hiatus. And I'm anxious to see how clean they can play. Right now, for me, it's not a concern about talent. I think there's enough talent on this team to make the tournament. But the first week of the season really concern me, and I, I want to delineate again between concern and worry. I'm not going so far as to say worried. I will say concerned because of the messiness that this team showed in those three games. The good news, Nickel State, they won at Pitt. They competed at LSU, and I'd have to check the score and see if they won that game as well, but Nickel State may not be that bad. Okay, so you went to overtime. You shouldn't have, but you got the win. Then you won on the road against Grand Canyon, and I know that that game, it took you a while to pull away, but you did. You won it. Move on. Arizona for 25 minutes. You're feeling okay about it, and you look like a team that could hold their own against a top 10 caliber uh, college basketball team, which I think Arizona, when all is said and done, may be well up there. But then the last 15 minutes left you wanting. Hawaii on Monday. Citadel on Wednesday. For this episode, you know, hopefully there's no losses against those two teams because then we might have to come on and do one of those emergency podcasts. I think you get the wins. And then Saturday, you got Hampton at home. That's a 7 o'clock. It should be a 3-0 and week at home. And you aren't probably going to learn a ton because of the lack of competition. But what I do want to see is clean basketball. I, like, I'm talking games where you don't turn the ball over more than 10 times. Because what we've seen so far are 15-plus turnovers per game. And that is something that we could say is easy to fix. I don't know how easy it is to fix. If the identity of this basketball team is going to be running up and down the court like a chicken with its head cut off and trying to score within the first five seconds of a shot clock, that can work if you don't turn the ball over. But that seems to not really go hand in hand with one another. Play fast, but don't turn the ball over. Well, that's easier said than done. Defensively, we see stretches where that uh, defense can be very disruptive. We even saw it at Arizona. But unfortunately, how, how can you ask a team to keep that up for 40 minutes? I know Nolan Richardson did it back in the day with Arkansas, right? 40 minutes of hell. And that won them a national title. And I guess it could for Illinois. And certainly Brad Underwood is recruiting guys that he think can fit that system. And I also understand that it will take time to fully ingratiate guys into that identity. But I, I just don't want this to become a season where, yet again, we find ourselves in, well, in the last couple of years, it's been really at the end of December, you know you're in trouble. I don't want to find ourselves in early February in a Big Ten that looks to be weaker, wondering, do we have enough quality wins to make the NCAA tournament? That's for the Arizona game. I wasn't expecting a win. 
But there is some sort of metric that if you lose by less than 10 on the road to a quality opponent, that can help you. But any margin over 10, it's not going to help you. So unfortunately, we throw that out the window. It won't be a bad loss, but it won't be a quality loss either that helps you out. You got Miami at home coming up for the Big Ten ACC Challenge, and then you have a couple of Big Ten games in December, which can get you at least some early attention. I think you need to go one and one, and I think that Michigan game is at home, yes, on Wednesday, December 11th. And then you have Missouri, but I I don't know how good Missouri is in the Bragging Rights game. Essentially, you need to go undefeated in these non-conference games, and you should. I mean, that's, that's number one. Then you have at Maryland on Saturday, December 7th. That's when you need to compete. And then you have Michigan at home the following Wednesday. Split the Big Ten games, win out the rest of the non-conference, and that means two losses going in to 2020. And you should be in okay shape at that point. Anything less than that, I get worried because of the lack of quality wins that you have out there. Fortunately for Illinois, some of the schedule, I'm looking at quality win opportunities at Michigan State on January 2nd, though who feels good about that? Purdue, even though they're struggling, Wisconsin, Uh, at Purdue. So you play Purdue twice. At Michigan, you play Michigan twice. Michigan State at home, Maryland at home. Those are two games on February 7th and February 11th that really might tell the tale. If you split those, you're probably in pretty good shape. And then other than that, a stretch at the end of the season where you should be able to stack some wins at Rutgers, at Penn State, even though they look pretty good. Nebraska at home, at Northwestern, Indiana at home, And then the final opportunity, it looks like, would be at Ohio State on March 5th. Now, it's always kind of a futile effort to look at the schedule and try to project how many wins a team is or is not going to get. But I do think that it is essential for this team to not lose again in the non-conference and to get a split in the Big Ten games in December. I don't think this is going to be an easy road. I don't think this team is going to be a five seed, and not that many were projecting that anyway. But I look at the talent and I think, God, if everything came together, why not? Why couldn't this be that surprise team in the Big Ten? I see this as more as like an eight or nine seed, maybe a 10 seed. But for me, I don't care what seed they have. I would prefer not the play-in game, but get me in the tournament regardless and couple that with recruiting wins. Adam Miller is looking to announce, I think, later this week, even though he won't sign until the spring period. If you couple him with Curbelo, then I'm not worried long-term. But I would still be concerned if this team has difficulty finding their way into the field of 68. Will they, won't they? I think ultimately they sneak in. I'm not concerned to the level of thinking they won't make the tournament, but I don't know how much we're going to learn in the immediate future. Three games at home this week. They should go 3-0. The 200 level will be outdated by the time the Hawaii game's over. But then again, it might just be one of those ho-hum 15-point wins. And honestly, give me the ho-hum non-conference home win against teams that aren't that great. That's what you kind of need right now. This is all about reps all about getting practice and getting better. And while I don't mind the idea of kind of running through the gamut with a two consecutive road games in your first three out in Arizona, that might serve this team well in the future. But I really want them to grow accustomed to winning. Because if you look at last season with Brad Underwood, not that that team was going anywhere anyway, but to start off with as tough of a schedule as they did, it gave them no chance to even grow accustomed to the feeling of winning games night in, night out. Now they have an opportunity to do that. Let's hope they do so in somewhat impressive fashion. Okay, so this bi-week extravaganza of the 200 level, we got Trevor Valise coming up for plenty of Illini talk. We asked for some of your questions on Twitter. We will answer those and get ready for the Iowa game on Saturday. That is, again, 11 a.m. kickoff. And looking forward to it and not feeling the pressure. I hope it's the same for the team as they can go up there and play loose and maybe sneak out what would be, man, you talk about the biggest win since, well, biggest win since Wisconsin, but the biggest road win 
since. We'd probably have to go back a little bit longer for a road win against a ranked team. We'll look that up before I get Trevor on. Um, maybe you would have to go back to 2007. Or maybe 2010, maybe one of Ron Zook's teams won on the road. Uh, regardless, we got Trevor coming up for a fun segment in this bi-week extravaganza. Then we have an interview that I did with Chuck Kaplinski about movies that, if you like movies even just a little bit, I think you'll enjoy this. You can find Chuck on Facebook at Real Talk with Chuck and Pam. That's R-E-E-L, like a film reel, Talk with Chuck and Pam. He's also on WCIA on Thursday afternoons on CI Living at 4.30, and then every Friday morning on the CIA 3 Morning News at 7.40. So he's been around for a while. In fact, he was teaching at Urbana Middle School when I was there. I didn't have him as a teacher, but he was another English teacher over there, still teaching. He said 29 years he's been doing it. I'm in year two, so I guess I got a ways to go. But great conversation with him and love talking shop about cinema. So that is something that whether you're on the road to Iowa City for the game on Saturday, you need a little bit of a respite from sports talk. Check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. And we will occasionally branch out, though, of course, we know what we are. We're an Illini sports podcast, and let's stick with that for now and bring in our old friend Trevor Belise for the 200 level. It is the 200 level. Mike Carpenter here with Trevor Belize. And before we get going, sorry, we don't have one of those witty, hairy black Yeah, intros. without Harry, it's just you and I talking. Yeah, we'll do that next week. Uh, DP Doe, of course, order online at dpdoe.com for all the latest deals and prices. You can get a combo with a calzone side and a drink. And then beginning January 1st in the state of Illinois, they might find ways to make it extra tasty. dpdoe.com. Also, of course, State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com for all your auto, home, life, business, and any kind of insurance need that you might have and fourth and for all your vintage inspired Illini apparel including hats t-shirts crew neck sweatshirts in time for Illinois basketball season and a new partnership with the Illini Union bookstores to so be on the lookout for that okay so it was a busy Saturday of football Trevor but it was much nicer to just watch it as a casual observer with something on the line yeah can I just say that yesterday was really nice it was beautiful because I'm used to having Saturdays where I don't really pay attention that much and I'm not watching an Illinois football game, but not because they have a bye week and they're six and four, right? It's because they're three and seven at that point, and it's like, why am I even watching? Yeah, it's usually apathy that sets in. And for me, the last decade, I can look at most Saturdays in November where there would be a game like Iowa, Minnesota that would pique my interest just as a casual sports fan, but I wouldn't watch it with the same sort of purpose right the same sort of keen eye yeah, for... it was almost like appointment tv for me yesterday <laughs> well, to watch that yeah because you're scouting iowa on one right. hand you're like well if we do this and we do that and i do think there are some openings for illinois when they play iowa because minnesota did move the ball mm -hmm. they just shot themselves in the foot time and time again but the other part of that game is that we've talked about the path to indy and i know it's sort of a lark we're, we're kind of joking about it but there actually is a path. We're kind of joking, but two of the five things that needed to happen happened this they week. They did. And right? the one so, that didn't might be the one that hurts the most. Wisconsin right. smoking Nebraska. Wisconsin needs to go two and one. And so you were hoping that if you look at Purdue and Nebraska as those two games, because Minnesota also needs to lose out. So that means that one of those Wisconsin losses can't be in the Minnesota game. I think Minnesota losing out is now a possibility. I actually think so, too. I almost think that it's worse 
the harder thing next week, I think, is that Purdue has to beat Wisconsin Agreed. than Northwestern has to beat Minnesota. I've talked about timing before and how I thought the Illinois-Michigan State game, the timing was ripe for an upset. That all went out the window when Illinois went down 28-3. to Another 28-3 comeback yesterday. Yeah. Oklahoma, Oklahoma last night. Baylor, right. And you're seeing you know, national media outlets. I think it was maybe Fox College Football or CBS College Football tweets out Patriots-Falcons, Illinois-Michigan State, <laughs> Oklahoma-Baylor. So it's just nice to you know, yeah. ride the coattails of that comeback. Uh, but the other part of it, as I look at that Northwestern Minnesota game coming up, is when I mentioned timing, Minnesota coming off the heels of two very emotional games. One win, one loss. Big weeks back to back, though. How can you go into Northwestern with the same level of intensity? I, I don't think that's An possible. 11 a.m. kick, sleepy, yeah. maybe rainy. Like, I, I, that seems not like it's ripe for an upset, but I think I'd put the chances of Northwestern beating Minnesota higher than I would Purdue beating Wisconsin. The vaunted Ryan Field crowd, lest we forget. <laughs> right. So, yeah, the, two of the five things happened. And next week, what we're looking out for. Other than Illinois beating Iowa, right? And that, that's, that's the other early. stipulation is you have to win out. But what if we're watching that game next Saturday and it's 14 to 10 Illinois third quarter, right? Mm-hmm. And then we check the scoreboard and, oh my God, Northwestern 10, Minnesota 7. <laughs> Pat Fitzgerald's going to do one of those Pat Fitzgerald things. And for me, regardless of what happens in the Minnesota Northwestern game, I don't take too much stock in that for when Illinois plays Northwestern. No, neither do I. And I think the timing actually does work out for Illinois in that you got the monkey off your back, you got to buy a week. And I'll be interested to see if Wally Batiku comes back, Jake Hansen comes back, mm-hmm. Ricky Smalling obviously done for the year. But uh, there are some good news sort of things that beginning tomorrow with Lovey's press conference could begin to trickle in. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, a week off is always nice, but I think it comes at a really good time. It is interesting, though, because of that. There was such a no time to talk, get on the bandwagon feel with that four-game win streak that you wonder what an off week does, a la Washington Nationals scoring a bunch of runs and sweeping the Cardinals, right. and then having to sit around for seven days before they play the Astros. didn't affect them any. No. I don't think Illinois is going to come out flat, per se, but you do have to remind yourself that the, other than the Purdue game, the Rutgers game, the Wisconsin game, and the Michigan State game were all... I don't know if I want to call them putrid first halves, but they were bad. They were bad. I mean, even the Wisconsin game, you didn't look all that great. Wisconsin goes down right away and scores. Mm-hmm. You look at Rutgers, the second quarter that they had against Illinois' defense, that was a concern. Y- you have tended to clean things up in the second halves, and that is encouraging. So for me, it's really as simple as keep this within 10 yeah. going into halftime. And I think they can. I don't think Iowa's offense is anything vaunted. Now, they got that running back, Goodson. They're running, I think, game was 11th in the Big Ten. They start him last week against Minnesota, and he looks terrific. He looked great. And uh, the wide receiver, Smith Marisette, yep. he's capable of big plays. And Nate Stanley's a senior, and you know that, I mean, if it came down to who's going to make the play first, Nate Stanley or Brandon Peters, I don't know. I, I tend to go with the home quarterback for that. But I, I do think, mentioning the 11 a.m. kick, if there's timing for the Illinois-Iowa game, it would be that you have Iowa-Nebraska, which doesn't have the same luster. I, I don't think the Hawkeyes look at this no, Nebraska No, but it's team, still a rivalry game. It is, and I think it's on the road. No, I don't know if that has any Day impact Day after at Thanksgiving, all. right? Right, right. The Friday after, th- after Thanksgiving. So with this game, 11 a.m., the early slate of games, which also includes Michigan State Rutgers. That's which, right. Wow. For some reason, not that I care, that gets FS1 and Illinois-Iowa gets BTN, but yeah, it's fine. whatever. That, that is interesting. It, it just I, seemed odd that Rutgers would be the national pick and BTN would be the regional, but whatever. Hey, the New York market. Going That's for true. That. <laughs> well, that foot got to increase that footprint. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I actually think that could be a game. Rutgers felt as good as you can in a blowout loss to Ohio yeah, State because they scored they, a little bit. And, that was the most points Ohio State's given up this year. Yeah. So, to Rutgers. I mean, that's if there's such a moral, and on the flip side, victory, Michigan State is just oh. 
And I was, I mentioned this, the opening segment, how we could do revisionist history and look back at the Michigan state game as not a quality win. I'm sticking with it as a quality one, given the circumstances, because I do think we've seen this with Illinois teams before you have the devastating loss. And then it's the next week where you just completely lay an egg. Illinois has something to do with Michigan state's collapse. I know they were already falling apart, but keep in mind the teams that they were falling apart part two were the Wisconsin's Ohio states and the Penn states of the world. So this is not something I look back on and think, well, you know, like all of a sudden that negates the uh, impact of that win. I I don't view it like that. Yeah, no, I I don't think so either. I think Michigan State is just falling from tier 2A to tier 2B or whatever that may be. And and I don't know how long D'Antonio is for that job. He looks miserable, but he always looks miserable. He always has looked miserable when they were 13 and 1. Right, but it's different when you're going down 45-10 to Michigan and you're looking over at him and he just looks like he's ready to quit. Yeah, for sure. And I before I could blink my eye i went outside to do something real quick came in and what had been first off it was seven nothing game and i remember mm-hmm. thinking it wouldn't surprise me given how good michigan state looked in the first half against illinois if maybe that second half against illinois was the aberration right and maybe all the quality opponents they had played earlier had gotten them ready for this one final shot save the season you know you get a team back in the corner they're going to tend to respond and then I come back in, and what was a 7 nothing game all of a sudden was 17-7. And then the next time I look over, it's 44-10, to just yeah. like that. Uh, that is a team that I read this morning out of the Detroit Free Pe- Press. First off, D'Antonio was 26-26 and in his last four years. Wow. That includes two outlier seasons, a 3-9 and season, and then a 9-3 and season, right. or 9-4. and but other than that, this is a 500 coach, and his, that's been since that pounding that Alabama gave him in the college football playoff. Exactly, that was the point right there. And I, I don't think anyone expected when that game was played. What was it? New Year's Eve, 2015. It was New Year's Eve four years ago, right? And no one expected that probably to be a Michigan State win. But no, that the was line still was surprising. like Alabama minus 20. I mean, it was pretty high. It was, and then they came back the next year, three and nine. Right, and and that. Then that seemed like an aberration the other way. The three and nine, Illinois beats them, and that's again a win over Michigan State. Where I go, yeah, okay, but it was a three and nine Michigan State team. I think this is still a better iteration of Michigan State. But the fact that he's five hundred over his last four years surprises me. Maybe it's just because what my image of Michigan State has been. In, in a way, he's lucky to be in the East. He's unlucky and lucky. Unlucky in that you have Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn right. State. But lucky in the fact that I don't think people reasonably would expect Michigan State year in, year out to be better than those three teams. No. So I guess if you're a Spartan fan, you need to ask yourself, are we okay with being the rung beneath those guys? But right. when Indiana surpasses you, I don't know what Maryland's going to be like under Indiana Loxley. Indiana looked good. They Again, did. I mean, they almost won on the road at Penn State. And it's weird to see how those two seasons have flipped because Michigan State-Indiana played in late September, yeah, that's I think. right, yeah. And Michigan State smoked them. Yep, they won by, I think, 10, 40 to 30. So that might be a move, and I don't know how attractive that job is. I would assume it'd be one of the better jobs out yeah, there. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I don't know who's on the coaching market, but I'm sure they could pull somebody big in there. I don't. When's the next time we play Michigan State? It's so weird how we have these sort of... A while, because your crosses, your every year cross after next year. So they've got like these seven-year deal things on your locked-in cross. It's been Rutgers. But now you get Penn State for the next six years or whatever, starting in 2021. That's right, because next year you still get Rutgers. And then you get... In Ohio State. You get two more random ones other than your lock-in. So I guess Michigan State will be one of those random ones. But since they cycle that stuff, at least three years, right? Probably more. I saw something from... And I got to give Illinois Athletics and Illinois Football Twitter credit. They are milking this for all it's worth, as they should. One of the things that they've been milking is Lovey's former players from the Bears. There was a... Yeah. uh, Something from the Bears post game show where Matt Forte, yeah, Lance it. Briggs, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it was Alex Brown said, you know, next year they're going to beat Michigan or Ohio State. And I said, well, <laughs> we aren't play playing Michigan, Michigan <laughs> so that leaves it to Ohio State. I don't know about that. Um, but it is cool to have been able to ride this wave to enjoy a college football Saturday stress-free to have a path to Indy. Which and it worked, <laughs> too. Like, like in not even a stress-free Saturday, but everything you wanted to happen, happened. For the most part, right. Other than Wisconsin beating Nebraska, because then that means Purdue has to beat them. As of the opening segment, there was no spread. Now that we have a spread, and it will probably fluctuate by a point or two, but not much. Mm-hmm. Twelve point Iowa f- home favorites, and I think that's about right. I thought it'd be a maybe fourteen point spread. If Michigan State was going to be fourteen and a half, I would have thought Iowa would be something similar. Yeah, that strikes me about right. Yeah, it seems like a ten to twelve point game. It would be too easy to say it's going to be a low scoring game as we did pre Michigan State, as we joked. It really about last does week. feel like that, though, right? It does. The last does. two times Iowa's played Illinois in Champaign, Illinois hasn't scored a point. Illinois wins if. Illinois wins if they get turnovers. I know that sounds silly, but that's what they've been doing every single week. If they get turnovers, because Nate Stanley hasn't been great. And I think you can pocket, you can pencil in 10 to 17 points at least from Iowa. They looked really good in that opening drive against Minnesota this week, and then they yeah. kind of stalled out for the rest of the game. It, they, they're just not a team that's going to go score three times on their first three drives. Well, they shouldn't. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. I didn't think yeah. Michigan State would either with Brian Lewerke, but they did. And right. this is the key to me is simply going to halftime within, you know. Yeah, I would say play a good first half because I don't really think you've had that other than the rain soaked Purdue first half to where you went into the halftime break feeling great about yourself because Wisconsin was what a 10 point game at half. Seven that would have been tw- that, at that point still 13, 17 seven? to seven or seven, something, something like that. Uh, Rutgers, you did not feel good going into the break no, 10 to 10, right? Not and, at all. And then 28 three, you don't feel good going into the, or 2010. I'm sorry. You feel a little good going into the break because baby caught that hail Mary touchdown, but wouldn't it be nice to go into the break up 10, seven? Well, and I think that changes the complexion of the game. We've been here for plenty of 11 a.m. kickoffs, and I might be overplaying this completely. I don't think it would have mattered that much more if Iowa would have lost a close uh, lost a close game or won a close game against Minnesota. My, my whole thing watching that second half in the Iowa-Minnesota game was make this competitive. I was afraid Iowa was going to run away yeah, with it. because, I mean, they almost did. They, they did, and that, that would have negated that extra bit of juice that they had to put into the fourth quarter because that was a pretty crazy fourth quarter Mm -hmm. where I thought Minnesota was actually going to complete the comeback. So did I. I thought this is their year. Imagining the insufferable P.J. Fleck quotes. But yes, I did feel that too when when they came out of halftime and got a stop and a score right away. I thought, oh boy. Can you clarify something for me? Because I was at Huber's watching this fourth quarter, so no sound. And there is the fourth down, and obviously the Gophers kicker sucks. They go for it. And then it's incomplete. The receiver drops it. And then about a full second later, an Iowa defender just knocks right into him. Mm-hmm. Helmet knocks to helmet. Down, helmet right. to helmet. Flag is thrown. Right. I'm watching this thinking, well, they're going to get a fresh set of downs. Mm-hmm. What happened after that? So PJ runs onto the field, but not just like runs toward the hash mark to talk to the ref. Like literally in the middle of the pile of players. It wasn't a brawl or anything, but you know, they were shoving because he knocked the guy down with his helmet. PJ is in the middle of that. Like he ran all the way into the pile of people on the field to pull his guys out of there and yell at the refs. Mm. And he kind of bumps the ref, not not anything egregious. And you already know that's going to be a penalty because you can't make contact with the referee. Now, I said on Twitter that I would laugh if that directly resulted in Minnesota losing the game because it otherwise would have been a first down and goal, but then it was an offsetting penalty because of the PJ's penalty. So then they could replay fourth down. Right, but someone clarified that that was a dead ball foul. So it was not an offsetting penalty. That was just going to be tacked on 
additionally on the fourth. That runner, really which, surprises me, which, though. Which surprises me as well, but they said it was after the whistle was blown and the play was over, so it was a dead ball, so it wasn't an offsetting penalty. Okay. So instead of directly costing his team a first down, he just cost them 15 yards. But it wouldn't have been better the alternative if right. he had yeah, actually caught, right. cost his team a first <laughs> so down. So I just, that exuberance that he says some people like and some people don't, just to see that directly play into the result of a game was amusing to me because I am one that does not enjoy that. Although I do have this weird feeling that if he were our coach, we'd be 100% defensive and supportive uh, of his antics. We, this is the tricky thing with football <laughs> is it brings out the inner meatball in yeah, all of us. Right. If you're a Minnesota fan, you're feeding that inner meatball right. every week with P.J. Fleck because there was one moment. Well, first off, any injury, he's running out there. Yep. And I even had this thought to myself yesterday that for an 18 to 22-year-old football player, coach sprinting out to see if you're okay, whether it's genuine or not, we could argue that is going to mean something. Mm-hmm. And it, it ha- the optics are good if you're a right. 17-year-old kid or a parent of a kid thinking, oh, well, this kid's going to, this coach right. is going to care about my kid. I remember when Tim Beckman ran out when Munchie Legault had his <laughs> oh, leg like <laughs> practically taken off his body. He like, ran, way he, to go, Tim. He ran out there and like hugged the guy and asked if he was okay and had to be kind of pulled away by the medical <laughs> yeah. people. Oh, my God. And that was like a positive piece of press yeah, for Tim Beckman for that sure, week. yeah. And the, Beckman's greatest victory as an Illinois coach, I would argue. I mean... Maybe at Northwestern, yeah, yeah, bowl I mean, eligibility, yeah, yeah. but that that was the best any of his teams ever. Looked. That was forty five seventeen against yeah. a good team. Is to, out of nowhere against Tommy Tuberville. It was weird. Yeah. Oh God. Uh, that's an aside. But as I look at this Minnesota team and PJ Fleck and all the histrionics with them, I couldn't help but imagine old grizzled Kirk Ferentz. Is it Ferentz or Ferentz? How do you say? I it? say Ferentz, but okay. I've heard people say Ferentz. Old Kirk, we'll call him Old yeah. Kirky, whose son so, is the offensive coordinator. Didn't realize that till yesterday. I know. I know. They said so and so Ferentz directing the offense, and I'm like, oh. Can you just imagine though, <laughs> Kirk watching this unfold, this PJ sprinting out and just thinking, <laughs> Good God, you've got to be kidding. Someone me. who's half his age, he's just he just can't stand he's it. He's probably like sure. you, young whippersnapper. Yeah. And I looked at Kirk Ferentz's record yesterday. I knew it was good. I knew it was good. It's actually remarkable because I understand he's not winning Big Ten titles left and right, that he's got a handful of those. Mm-hmm. I know he's not making um, you know, college football playoff appearances, right. but how many teams do? And when he has made the Rose Bowl, he's been blown out. Yeah, yeah, there is that. So, But if you look at everything that we've ever said, seven to eight wins a year would be uh, ideal. And I don't really need a lot of Big Ten titles, I'll be honest. I would genuinely be happy with a seven and five, eight and four with a one, nine and three decade. Well, and I'm watching... Uh, I about said Carver Hawkeye. Sorry, Kinnick Stadium. (laughs) I'm watching Kinnick Stadium yesterday, and clearly that was a big game. But for the most part, that place is always full. There, there's a vibe about that place, and Mm -hmm. Iowa football means something up there. But it didn't when he took over. I mean, it was hard to fill that stadium when he was winning one and then three games. Goes to a bowl game his third year, and I couldn't help but think as I went through Wikipedia and the coaching record of uh, Kirk Ferentz or Ferentz that this is it, right? This is the model. Now, Lovey Smith would not be here for 20 years. That wouldn't happen. No, but why can't we take over that spot? Yeah, there's there's no there's no real reason you can't. Like because they're gonna, I was gonna have to figure something out. Kirk's not gonna be there forever, right? I mean, he'll be there as long as he wants to be. But how old is he? Mid sixties. Yeah, so he's not I'll gonna. Check that. I mean, he's he's almost Lovey's age, right? I, yeah, they're they're a similar age, so he's not gonna be there forever. But my God, to be Iowa football, and and like you said, it's not asking. For that much, and it's asking for a lot from an Illinois perspective to suddenly go to seven to eight wins every single year. But when you look at the Iowa model for how they do it, the kind of recruits they get, how long they've been able to stabilize and sustain this type of success, there's no reason Illinois can't hypothetically do that. He has won three Big Ten titles, and if you look at since they made their first bowl game with him in 2001, he went seven and five. They have made 18 of 19 bowl games. Wow. 
give me that and three Big Ten titles over a 19 year yeah. period, it would by far be the best period of Illinois football mm-hmm. ever. I mean, it's not even close. Sustained wise, because because you know as as great as these seasons are, the one footnote with any excellent Illinois football season is it's hardly ever followed up with another one. Yeah, exactly. The only back-to-back bowls were 2010 and 11, right? And this is what scares me about next year and why I think the Iowa game is kind of crucial. Win or loss. I've, and I mentioned the opening segment, there are quality losses to be had at Iowa. Mm-hmm. I really think so. But for me, I look at 2020 and that schedule and think, well, it's pretty easy to look at that and pick out seven wins right away. I've done that exercise before. I did in 2008. What should have been a winnable schedule for Ron Zook and that team wasn't. 2009, same thing where I remember looking at that thinking, I know we won, went five and seven last year, but I'm feeling a eight-win team. And I genuinely thought were. that. They were right. receiving votes before the season. Well, do you remember their website, 7 to nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Heis- the Heisman thing, yeah. <laughs> and Juice didn't even start like half the games yep. that year. Nope. He That is an interesting career, but that's for another Yeah, day, and right? people always talk about the Fresno State game, but as we pointed out before, that was just like the cherry on top oh of the God. fart Sunday for this. <laughs> like, like, that was nothing. No, it was terrible. So I look at Kirk Ferentz, and I'm thinking, okay, for this Iowa game on Saturday, if you go up there, Let's say lose twenty seven twenty, you lose twenty four to seventeen, mm-hmm. something like that. It, it, to me, it's long as look as long as you look the part, like you belong out there with Iowa. I'm thinking, yes, genuine progress, and we can continue talking about this being a corner turning kind of season. Yeah, because right? Iowa, I would argue, is one of the last teams that you ha- haven't yet like broken the monkey off your back from. Because the last time you beat them was oh nine, oh eight, oh eight. You would have beat them. So 08, it's yeah. been a decade since you've beaten them. You know, sixty three nothing stays in people's minds. The last two games here were sixty three nothing and twenty eight nothing. That's right. Yeah. So to even make it close would just kind of send a message. Not necessarily like send a message to Iowa, like they're walking away scared of Illinois. But th- I would I would argue that Il- Iowa is the last Big Ten West team that you haven't even. Um, looked competitive against in the Lovey era. In a way, even these Wisconsin games up at Wisconsin last year, remember for little bits and spurts, thinking they were close, right? Right, right. we're actually making it semi. Then you beat them this year. You beat Purdue this year, so you've gotten that small monkey off your back because they kind of whooped you the last few years. Michigan State, you own apparently. Apparently, Minnesota, (laughs) you actually beat last year, so it's not like there's a long losing streak against them. Nebraska, you've come close several times. You beat them four years ago. Their defense. I got to be honest, though. I thought about that yesterday when they they're getting blown out at home by Wisconsin and thinking, you know, we could play them again, but I still get the feeling it'd be a crazy yeah. game. I, no, just I, like I agree with that. It'd be like 56 50 right. or something like I, that. I would not trust our defense even now. to right. shut. But the Nebraska point is down. the only other team in the West that, you, that just hasn't even thought about you as, as a thought in their mind as a threat is Iowa. Yeah. So to go up there and either win or lose 27-20, I think, would do a lot for you. It would say that we're at least, we're here to stay in the middle of the Big Ten West. Right. In the middle. And then you get them, I, next, I don't need year, you get them next year at home, and you're not thinking 63-0, 28-0, and say this weekend was 31-0. Like, you aren't thinking that if it's a close well, game. And it'll be interesting, because Nate Stanley's had a lot of success against Illinois in his, has. In his four years he so far. He hasn't been good this year. No, he hasn't, but. which is really peculiar, because I feel I don't know how many weapons he has. And I was one of those teams that all these years with Kirk Ferentz, I I could, on one hand, maybe name you Iowa players in the last 20 years. <laughs> uh, Desmond King mm-hmm. was, was was kind of a, a stud first round. They pick. had a running back in 2008. Was it Sean Green? Was it? I don't know. Well, they beat Penn State at home in 2008. This was the okay. same day that Illinois lost to Western Michigan. Okay. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> leaving Legends, and I was despondent, just in a bad place, right? And I go home, and it was, I think, a blackout game at Iowa. 2.30 start, and they have a game-winning field goal to beat number one Penn State in 2008. Okay. 
pretty sure Sean Green was the running back. Okay. And then 2009, they beat a pretty highly ranked Michigan State team on the last play in East Lansing. I remember that one. There's something like five and two in their last seven against top, top 10 top teams 10 at teams. home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They've played Penn State. They blew out Ohio State a few years ago. They That's right. ruined their playoff well, wasn't chances. It, it was, was it like, one? Was it last year? Uh, last year, they didn't beat any top 10 teams at home. So it was two years ago. Two years ago, ago they right. beat Ohio State, and then three years ago, they beat Penn State at home. Oh, God, that's right, and that was a crazy uh-huh. game. But again, like I can say TJ Hawkinson because he's in the NFL yeah, now, but yeah. like I, five years from now, I won't remember that Let's name. Go back to Brad Banks. <laughs> I, I don't remember early hardly any Iowa players. I don't either, which I think speaks to, you know, if you want to talk about a program that has their own identity and they just sort of churn players in and out and it just fits their system, it's Iowa. We mentioned that with Wisconsin. We and, do. And certainly they, they've had that success and probably higher levels of it, more Big Ten titles I know yeah. in the last 20 years. But with Iowa next year will be interesting because any time that you get rid of a four-year quarterback. And Epinesa. They're only really true. good defensive players. Yeah, well. exactly. So I, I, maybe they take a step back. And well, again, we played that game before, and then they come out and are seven and five again. They but. do, but this seems like more the eight or nine win team when it's all said I'd and agree done. With that. And what then, are they, seven and three right now? Seven and three with, with Illinois and then Nebraska. So they're going to get one, maybe they're two. They're going to get at least eight, yeah. And then at nine and three, I don't think they're in the running for a Big Ten title. No, but that's a really quietly good nine and three year for Iowa. And then they get the Outback Bowl. Yep. Ugh. Play I Auburn. want the Outback Bowl. So play if you Auburn beat Iowa, Auburn. would you be in play for the Outback yeah, Bowl? Yeah, I think your only chance for Outback is if you run the table. Okay. If you're 8-4 and four, and then, say, Iowa loses to Nebraska and you need Michigan to lose to somebody else so that you're 8-4 and four, and those two teams are either 7-5 and five or equally 8-4. and four. Now, sometimes, though, they don't invite back the same team. And keep in mind, there Iowa was at the Outback last year. That's true. There are rules with that. But then I don't know how those... There are a certain number of rules for bowl committee stuff, but then as soon as a team that is supposed to make it doesn't or one of their teams goes to the college football playoff, every rule is out the window. Yeah, right. Right, Like you've got the Armed Forces Bowl and you've got two random teams that aren't Armed Forces teams playing in it. See, this is why I want to be Iowa because Iowa fans are probably sick of the Outback Bowl. They've been there three of the last six years. Have they really? Yeah. Outback. Okay, so beginning in 2013. Did they play South Carolina every time? Mm, good question. They do not have <laughs> opponents here, but it wouldn't surprise me. Outback, Tech Slayer. Do they still have that That's bowl anymore? That's the Gator Bowl now. Then they did play in the Rose Bowl in 2015. They, they got, got blown out by Stanford. That's right. A loss uh, in the Outback Bowl in 2016, and then they wow. won Pinstripe, which seems to be the one yep. everyone's circling Illinois for, and then they won the Outback. Well, the main reason why Illinois circled for the Pinstripe is because Pinstripe is one of those bowls where it has a rule that any team that's been in it the last five years can't be in it again. Okay. So in the last five years, Indiana... Wisconsin and the Indiana was that was a great bowl game. Yeah, against Indiana Duke, Duke. It went to overtime. Yeah. Indiana, um, Wisconsin, and Iowa have all been there in the last five years, so that automatically eliminates three of those teams that are in the running with you. <sighs> I need to think. We're we're going to be in Michigan for Christmas afterwards. Probably just going to end up watching it. But they had, they have the Detroit airport right there, Yankee Stadium. I mean, come on, It'd be pretty cool for you. Uh, yeah, and it's probably never. I say never going to happen again. But at least for five years, right. It's not. I'm all in for Redbox because my family lives in Santa Clara. There you go. Which See, is free exactly lodging. Where it is, so Perfect. free lodging. Okay. I'm definitely going out there for that one. But we're talking about this. Isn't it yeah, great? Yeah, and, it's and, awesome. It, to me, the only way the season reverts back to disappointment is if they lose to Northwestern. That's it. I'd agree with if you lose out, right, and you're six and six. And, and then six and seven Detroit. to end it. Right. Then it's like, oh, uh, the, the, was... the beauty of a win against Northwestern, apart from just slaying that dragon too, mm-hmm. is that you will not finish under 500. Agreed. And there is something to do with optics where I, I look back at 2010 and 2011, <laughs> which we've talked about ad nauseum. Probably yeah. every week those yeah. stupid teams come up. and But they still were one game above 500. So there's this weird fondness 
that you look back on like, yeah, those were two okay years. Six and seven, though, like Beckman right. in 2014. We don't look back on Six the appearance and seven in Zaxby's Heart of Dallas. Louisiana Tech is like ugh, the worst type of bowl season no, you can be, have, right? Exactly. Louisiana Tech in the heart of Zaxby's Heart of Dallas. Zaxby's Dallas, right? Heart of Dallas. What was yeah. the bowl? It was just the Texas Bowl in 2010. Yeah, it was like the Alamo Texas Bowl or something like that. 2011 was Craft Fight Hunger, Hunger, which yeah. I don't think they have that anymore. No. Nope. Uh, at least I don't see the name. I think that's is the it? Red Box now. Okay. Is it, cause it, at, is it at Giant Stadium? Uh, no, it's at the 49ers Stadium. I say Giant Stadium, sorry. But okay, the new stadium, the yep, 49ers yep, play. Yep. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, that would be. I mean, they're also still in a, obviously a playoff hunt, so I don't know how that works. I, so, I guess it's an away game that week for them. We won't go so far as to predict an Illinois win, right? No, I'm not going. Similar to Michigan State, I'm not really going in with this game feeling like they need to win or I think they're going to win. But I also don't have like the dreading feeling that they're going to lose by 20. I That would be disappointing to have another result like that. Where like the fear or disappointment would be that the first half is similar and then the second half isn't a big comeback, right? It's just right. like a, a disappointing effort. If they win, here's my thing. I was trying to if think. They of win. They're eight and four. I was trying to think of something crazy I could do if they win. <laughs> and we were driving today to grocery shop, and on McDonald's it says McRib is back. And I told Kara if Illinois beats Iowa, I'm going to get a McRib. Never had a McRib. It's great. I mean, I it's not even, great. I don't, but, I don't understand how it works. Well, it's just shaped pork. Right. It's you not know, like shape bone it like a rib. ribs. No, but it's and McDonald's. all they have on it is just pickles and onions. <laughs> and that's it. And I remember I had this weird Never fondness for the McRib because in 0405, so during that great basketball season, McRib usually comes out twice a year. Think of the winter and the spring. Yeah. And or the fall and the spring. So early in that season, I remember trying the McRib for the first time as I'm watching an Illinois basketball game. They're number one in the nation and think, God, this is really good. And then during the final four run, I remember getting a McRib after they beat Arizona in the Elite. Okay, so it's an association thing for you. Total association thing. (laughs) I haven't had one in years, but I'm like, if they beat Iowa, I'm going to drive to McDonald's. I'm going to get McRib. Okay. And now the joke, of course, with a friend and I was that sometime we're going to try black tar heroin after a big win. (laughs) I I don't know if I'd say that for Iowa or not, but... (laughs) <laughs> that would be if they go nine and three, right? If they go nine and, and they, they win like the Outback Bowl. Or, yeah, they went out and they, they win the out. If they make the Outback Bowl, what do they announce bowl projections on like a Sunday or something? I believe it's like it's it's a Sunday after uh, it's around my birthday. My birthday is December 4th. So okay. I think I'm not like, sure the drug market's like on a Sunday, but I'm going to find <laughs> if they say Illinois Outback Bowl versus South Carolina, let's hope that will be the first. South Carolina is four and six. Second. So I would guess Auburn. Auburn, okay. Auburn's seven and three right now, and I think they face Alabama, so they'd probably finish eight and four. Hopefully, it wouldn't be a repeat of last year, Auburn versus oh, Purdue. Oh God, that was just a, because you, I I don't. It's weird. I do want to be in a better bowl, but at the same time, I'd rather just win a bowl game. I, I think that's more important uh, than saying, yeah. "Hey, kids, no, like we lost sure, by yeah. twenty eight, but we were in a slightly better mid tier yeah, bowl." Above all else, I don't want to walk away from this season feeling any sense of dread because if you get to a better bowl and lose by sixty, like Purdue did. Yeah. I don't care that you made a bowl. You're not walking away from that feeling good. And I don't know what carryover effect there was from that bowl game to this year's Purdue team, but it certainly opened some people's eyes like, wait a second, is the Brahm effect right. kind of wearing down a bit? Right, because with that loss, I think he went under 500. So then the tweets were, you know, for all that he's made up to be, Jeff Brown is 13 and 14 and just lost by 60. Exactly. Right. I, I don't want that. Uh, we have some viewer mail. Viewer yeah. mail, like we're on mailbag. a show or something. We got a mailbag thing. So it is our bi-week extravaganza. I think we're just going to call the episode bi-week extravaganza. Sure. No cute puns or anything like that. Uh, with Illinois, Iowa coming up, we've already talked about that in the opening segment as well. So we got a bunch of tweets in about sports and other topics that Trevor and I were going to address. Yeah. You want me to read them off? Yeah, let's see here. Let's just kind of go and order what we got. All right. Let's see. Uh, if you had, this is an interesting one, if you had the re- rewind feature from Madden, 
Was there a Madden with a rewind feature? Madden rewind feature. Uh, let's just go with it. Because yeah. there were Madden moments, which I always enjoyed. That's right. You're Madden Aaron, moments. And maybe they're just referring to it as a replay. You're Aaron Rodgers. You're, you got the ball down two touchdowns with four minutes left. You have to win the game. Something. But like this that. sounds like a situation where revisionist history, you get a right. back to the future stuff. Um, but could only use it for one play in Illinois football history to try and change the fate of that game. What play would it be? Illinois football history. Correct. So I think first what you have to do here is you have to look at the play that was the downturn of the eras of Illinois football that didn't work. I'll go right? to two in particular. I'll go to 2000. Okay. Okay. The Michigan game at home. Where yeah. If it, whatever the second turnover the was. The bane of Lante's existence. Right. Whether it was Rocky Harvey's non-fumble that was called a fumble or with Anthony Thomas actually fumbling it, but they said he was down. One of those might have been enough for Illinois to hold that lead and win the game. Mm-hmm. That would be one, though I don't think Ron Turner had the staying power that Ron Zook would have. So as weird as this sounds, I may go back to 2008, 5 and 7. Okay. I need to flip one game. Okay. Okay. If you flip one game, I think that they might have been able to really keep things going. But the negative recruiting, I'm guessing, started the minute they went 5 and 7. Yeah, for sure. See, I was going to say maybe, and this sounds a little strange, but the triple overtime against Michigan. Okay, in and then that because, year you're going 7 and 5. Cuz well, cuz at that point uh, eight you would, at that point you'd be 6 and 3 if you'd won that game coming True. home to play a bad Minnesota team. And you probably won that game too. You probably won that game so you're 7 and 3. And then you got the Fresno State game to end the season. I don't know if you win that game or not. Okay, I like your thought process there. But so, suddenly that turned cuz that team should have been better, right? Oh, absolutely. But if I had to point to one play that could flip how good that team was, it would probably be winning that game at Michigan, right? You know what's sad is if I picked a game in 2008, I, if I said Western Michigan or something. Yeah. But really though, that game was as that game unfolded, it was just three and a half hours of torture because only look crap, you know. That full game is on YouTube and I don't know why, but I, every once in a while I just torture myself and watch well, it. Cuz he got Cubit on the other yeah, sideline. Right, yeah. It just—it's too weird. I don't even know what the play would have been in that game. I don't know. It, that's the tricky part. Is it's not change one result. It's change one play. I feel like the Missouri game that year was close, but not again. Not one play. Right. Maybe the Minnesota game. In that was when things took a turn. If I remember, Illinois had just beaten Michigan at Michigan in two thousand eight. Well, that was the game where Juice Williams went in and set the big house oh, record for yards yeah, yeah, in the yeah. game. Yeah, you're right. You're oh, right. God. This is something I have not done in a long time. We, haven't 2008, done, we, we do 2010 and 11, but we don't do 2008 very <laughs> oh, often. Oh, God. So you'd have to pick one fun. play. But yeah, I think you're right. I think he, he they did go into Michigan and win. And then okay, you faced that, Minnesota at home. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, okay. So here, here's what you got. I, re- I remember the season so well, and I was so excited for it, as every Illinois Everybody was, was, right? Yeah. You lose to Missouri 52-42. to 42. Okay. And I think you got it within 45 to 42, and Missouri got a late score. You were on the comeback trail. Disappointing loss, two years in a row to Missouri, but you felt like we're still good, and they were still ranked. Smoke Eastern Michigan at home with the new, newly renovated Memorial mm-hmm. Stadium. Louisiana Lafayette, you beat them 20 to 17. The Raging Urgh. Cajuns. Yes. Okay, then Penn State on the road, nationally televised, Saturday night game. They beat you 38-24, wide out. Mm-hmm. But you were relevant. You were nationally relevant. Yeah. And then the next week, or bye week, sorry, then you go to Michigan, 45-20, 230 ABC. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Holy crap. Yeah. We're good again. We, we knock the dust off. And then Minnesota comes to town, and you lose 27-20 to Tim Brewster Yep. and the Gophers. I would maybe go with that Take game because... Then you smoke Indiana at home the next week. At yeah, that, that point, you would have been four and two. That was a night game too, and you blew them out. That's right. Then you would have been four and two. You lost to Wisconsin twenty-seven to seventeen. Whatever. Beat Iowa. 
Lost to Western Michigan. <laughs> but I think that if that season had a different... No, I'm with you, though, because it's, yeah. like, it's like saying that you flipped the Fresno State result or something. Like, that doesn't really have as big of an impact if you choose the last game of the year, right? Yeah, and then they just... This is what Zooks teams do. They still had a bowl game well, on the they line. They lost 21-16, right, to Northwestern? No, they lost 27-10. Oh. There was another year they lost 21-16. That's frustrating. There's been a few years like that where you're still 5-6 and going into that Northwestern game and you just lay an egg. So I know it would be easy to say 2000 Illinois-Michigan, but I don't think Ron Turner has staying power. I would go Zook 2008. You beat Minnesota at home. Whatever one play you need to turn, maybe it's just that I say Illinois at the end of it, complete the Hail Mary. Sure. Where I remember vividly my dad and I were watching it, and Jeff Cumberland, 6'7", tight end, that went on to play for the Jets, isn't even on the field. For a Hail, for Mary, Hail Mary, a six foot seven tight end slash wide receiver. I'd probably go for some result in the 2010 season because that feels like it should have been eight and four. Instead, it was six and six. Probably should have been. I guess you could look at the stripe the stadium game the next year when you you're give them one more oh. touchdown. It's like AJ Jenkins fumbles the ball right when he, when you're down. Oh, yeah, I think fourteen right. nothing, and you don't score, and you end up scoring one touchdown real late and lose seventeen seven. I guess if you flip that, maybe you score and you're seven and zero after that game. But it still feels like there was an inevitable collapse based on how bad that team was down the stretch. I know there's a sense with Illinois fans that we've had more bad luck than most, but I was also thinking about the luck that Illinois had, and there was one play in particular. Thanksgiving Day 2001, Northwestern is here for a Big Ten title on the line. Not that Northwestern was playing for it. Illinois yep. was. All you have to do is beat Northwestern, and you're leading that entire game you know, by 7, 10 points. you got to lead, but eh, whatever. Northwestern had an opportunity late. They had a wide-open wide receiver. Christian Morton stumbled in coverage, and the quarterback just overshot him. Wow. I forget, it, was, it wasn't Dan Persick because he was later, but it was a decent quarterback from Northwestern that just lost him. Dan and if they complete it, then Illinois would have backed their way into a yeah. co-title right. with Michigan. But, yeah, I, I, I was just thinking about that, though. Like, I know we normally think of Illinois as very unlucky, but for the most part, we've been bad. And then when we're yeah, relevant, yeah. the luck tends to bounce either oh, yeah. really yeah, hot right. in one direction or really cold. Well, look what other. happened last week, right? I mean, there's exactly. a tremendous amount of luck involved in that. If I had to pick something more recent, I'd probably, and I know Harry would say this one, when you're four and one in Cubits year after you beat Nebraska, no wide receiver Keyshawn interception. Vaughn Keyshawn, fumbles yeah. or throws the interception, right? Because it's like a weird trick. No, play, it was Geronimo Allison was wide receiver. Geronimo pass. Allison throws right. the interception when Lund is having his best game as an Illini. If that drive is completed, you take the lead with about two minutes left to go in the game. You know what is actually sort of. Well, so then you'd be 5-1 and one after that Iowa game. Poetic justice, I guess you'd call it, is Graham Couch is the Michigan State writer who had criticized Whitman for firing Cubit. Right. There was that tweet where he said, I forget what he because said. Because his eyes got big with Lovey Smith, this yeah. young, inexperienced athletic director, wanted the shiny new toy and got rid of Cubit, as if Cubit would have done anything here. Right. Let's, let's just dispel that myth right now. <laughs> I like Cubit for what he, he was. He was a nice old man. Yes, he was not going to do anything here. <laughs> it wasn't going to work. Yeah. So let's just dispel that. And now Michigan State is falling flat on its face. Yeah, that was kind of funny to look back. People re- were, were retweeting that because earlier in that game even, he mentioned um, his score prediction. I think it was 31-10. Yeah. But then in that game, he said, I'm changing it to 42-10. Oh, I know. About yeah. halfway through the game and it, got blown up for that. It is. And then I guess the, the speculation is that beginning in this offseason, it's a rebuild up there. Yeah. Which so is, is not crazy. And you, you mentioning 26 and 26 in his last four, it's kind of hard to believe, honestly, for me. You, you don't want to have to get to a point as a Michigan State fan where you look fondly on the days of Brian Lewerke, <laughs> but they might be approaching. <laughs> He's bad. He's okay. bad. So what else do we have from our okay, not so viewers, that, well, our so listeners? That was only one question. Um, why are the Bears so bad? 
fairly simple question with a fairly complicated answer. I think it's a fairly simple answer. Okay. Though. Ryan Pace did a good job through free agency and trades and some draft picks building that defense. Right? Stop giving him credit for Khalil Mack, by the way, but continue. I would agree, yeah. I mean, like, he was it, out there and he made the move, but I understand, who wouldn't? You know, like, right, he won GM of the year almost based solely on that move, but it's like if someone called me and said, would you trade a first-round pick for the best defensive player in football, why are you going to say no? At the end of the day, I think Ryan Pace is the biggest problem with the Bears, and this is not to get the whole Kaepernick argument in here, but here's the problem. You have a quarterback issue. And that's putting it mildly. You have a quarterback dilemma in that you don't really have a quarterback. Right. Mr. Trubisky could come out and just smoke the Rams. And if you're listening this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're probably going to laugh at that after the Rams beat the Bears 27-10. <laughs> but uh, I, I just don't understand how in that draft, and I know it's so easy to say, and I know there were draft boards that said Mitch Trubisky was the best mm-hmm. pro prospect, but you doubled down on it and traded up by for him because you were so convinced yeah. that Mitch Trubisky was the guy. Also, at the end of the day, you're judged by that. Right. And, and that is the biggest favor of the Bears franchise, of which they've had many quarterback failures, now you're stuck and unfortunately let a possible championship window go by. And they didn't even really look at Watson or Mahomes. No, they didn't interview Watson. That's no, a no, national champion. I will actually let Mahomes go because he was picked, what, 15th or 16th? Yeah. People yeah. knew that in that te- um, air raid Texas Tech Big 12 offense that he was good, but no one knew he was going to be that He could have been right? another, who's the Arizona coach? He was actually a quarterback too for them, I uh, think. Kevin right? Sumlin? No, 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 the Arizona Cardinals coach. Um, um, uh, Is Kevin Sumlin coaching Arizona yeah, Wildcats? Yeah, yeah, he's the Arizona How's Wildcats. How's he doing out there? Terrible, they're 4-6. Oh, and my six. God, what happened to him? Why can't I remember his name, that young guy? Yeah, the Cliff King Kingsbury. Cliff Kingsbury. Right, he yeah. was a quarterback for Texas Tech. He wasn't going to be a good pro. Right. Right. Kevin Sumlin stinks in Arizona. So I get it. I would but, have been worried with the air raid quarterback, right. too. But, but, but the fact that they That's why I'm not getting paid millions of dollars. they didn't even in. look at Watson, okay? And no. that's what's weird to me, because Watson has everything. If you, if you look at... Trubisky and Watson, just in terms of their resume as a college quarterback, it's not even in the same stratosphere. And someone tweeted this out yesterday, and I forgot that two years ago, or this actually would have been 2016, and it wasn't three years ago to the day, but it was just in the 2016 football season, the same day that Illinois lost at Nebraska in that competitive game, Lovey Smith's team, that night it was Louisville-Clemson. You have Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson Watson. Deshaun Watson, and how anyone in their right mind could watch that game and say, I'm taking Trubisky. He only started nine collegiate games correct he was beat out for the starting job the year before senior season by a guy who doesn't even exist in the nfl now yeah, exactly so it, it is a comedy of errors though it's not just trubisky it's but shaheen he's they drafted shaheen in that exactly. class high and what happened to him he's been a complete and total bust <laughs> he was a non-injured what do they call that holdout or non-injured inactive yes. last week yeah, yeah, yeah. so they could send a message right and, and when that dope Literally just fumbled a kickoff. Yeah. And not that that game was not that the Bears no. are going to come back, but when he just fumbled it like a complete dope, mm-hmm. I said, I'm done. And even watching that Detroit game last week, and again, you're going to be listening to this maybe after the Bears triumph against the Rams. It doesn't matter. This is not a playoff team. They aren't going to win the Super Bowl. Right. They're going to do anything with Mitch Trubisky. Starts at the top. Nagy's another one where I am worried that it was the shtick that I loved. You love it when you're winning. Just like PJ yep. Fleck, people no, love yeah, it when right, they're winning. Right. It's just not working, and the lack of accountability, and the, again, the doubling down on poor decisions, including the fact that he says, before you kick a 40-something yard against the Chargers, well, I wasn't going to run it, I wasn't going to pass it, because um, 
something bad could happen. But right? Pinheiro comes out and says that he did, told him he didn't even like where the ball was marked. There's that. But on top of that, mathematics and analytics, whatever you want to say, they prove that if you were to move the ball even three more yards, your chances of making that field goal, goal go way up. Yep. Okay. And that the chances of you fumbling or throwing an interception, something like 0.01% right, of NFL plays right. result in that. Nagy calls a game like he's scared. But I don't know how much of that is because he's rightfully scared of his quarterback under center, right? But you know what? But you know what he should do then. His job is probably safe. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think he should get another year with a different quarterback. But, but just have Mitch throw it all over the freaking field. Who cares? Mitch right, is the one who's going to be gone, point, right? Yeah, like open it up for Mitch, and then you, you know, it seems like he's kind of protecting him. And at this point, like, why protect him? Remember when Jay Cutler was just throwing? And, and I, this is one of those. Looking back fondly on the Ron Zook era, I look mm-hmm. back fondly yeah. on the Jay Cutler era, even though he drove me nuts at times. But all the dumb interceptions that he would throw, mm-hmm. and I never once after one of those interceptions thought, oh, "Ron Turner, what are you doing?" You know, right. or or come on, Lovey. No, in other words, when the an NFL quarterback making tens of millions of dollars stinks. He's the one that's going to take it. Yeah. Not the coach. Right. It's not Matt Nagy's job. I, I understand it's his job technically to develop the quarterback. But, but he, it's to the point of like coddling. Well, it's not his right. job to polish a turd. He, right. he shouldn't have to do that in the right. NFL. Right. So I don't know how much of this is his fault opposed to Trubisky or Pace's fault. But I, I'm in the camp that he should get another year. I don't think you fire Nagy now. No. But Trubisky needs to be done. Like there's just there's no way it's going to work. I'd be fine if they fired Nagy, but at the yeah. same time, because he depends on who's out there, I guess. This is the problem: is that if you look back at the Bears' history, Lovey Smith was hired because his by the uh, I about said the Rays, the Bucks. <laughs> he was hired because he had a good head coaching record. Yep. He was a valuable commodity in the NFL. Mark Tressman not hired again. John Fox, come on, give me a break. And then same with Matt Nagy. He's not going to get hired anywhere else. He's not a hot commodity. Right. The problem no is no one wants him. The problem right now is that Nagy is Tressman. If, yeah, if, if you yeah. look at their comparisons, like the the, the offenses are about offense the is same. worse. Offense is worse. Offense is worse. The defense is better. Now, when you look at last year, what's really weird about that season is that the first three games, the offense was terrible. Had their coming out party against Tampa Bay. They had a really good stretch about the second quarter of that season. Yep. Playing Vikings the Smith game. at home, uh, Rams at home. You beat both of them. Yeah, but the Rams at home game, remember the offense stunk. Yeah, no, you're right. All yeah, defense yeah. that game. And really the month of December, though what made me feel good going into that Eagles game was that the Bears went on the road to Minnesota and the Vikings had a playoff spot on yeah. the line. And the Bears well, smoked even competitive, right? And they controlled the ball. They moved it just, just fine. Jordan Howard had his best game. Don't need him. Right. If, if we're playing Madden for Bears, I might honestly go with the doink last year because I just feel like that team was destined to go much further. Well, that was going to be the one, right? And they were naturally going to have a fallback. I thought that they were going to stem the inevitable uh, hangover thing. And and I remember the 06 Bears going to the 07 year thinking, ah, it doesn't have the same vibe. You you knew that everything went right for the 06 team. Mm-hmm. We knew that everything went right for the 18 team. Yeah. I still thought they were able to overcome that based on the idea that Trubisky wasn't going to suck to high heaven. Right, because he's the quarterback and he's the most important position on the field and he can't regress that much. <sighs> so they play tonight, but again, whenever you're consuming this podcast, I might be eating my words, but at 5-5, five and five, and I don't even know the rest of their schedule. The tricky thing like. is at 5-5, five and five, the next two weeks are Giants and Lions. So you go, so, but Giants the, at home? Yeah, but here's the problem. Say they do that and they're 7-5, and five, the Vikings are still two games ahead of them right now. Yeah, but that, that is the one team that I could see completely pooping the bed. I guess, but Kirk Cousins has been really good for the last four or five weeks, which is weird because he was just so terrible to start the year. I don't what know. are the wild card 
What's that picture looking like? I mean, the Cowboys have been struggling. It's crowded because you've got one of the Cowboys and Eagles is going to make the other wild card, whoever doesn't win the division. You've got mm-hmm. the Panthers right there with the Saints in the NFC uh, South. You've got uh, Packers and Vikings in the North. And then in the West, you've got Seahawks, 49ers. And uh, who's the third team in the West that's still in it? Third team in the West. Let's see. Seahawks. Seahawks, oh, the, the Niners, Rams, Rams. That's I guess. right. Five and four, right? Yeah. Right. So I mean, it is a There's big game tonight. There's a lot of tonight. teams in the in the hunt category. I think whoever loses tonight is done. Done. Oh, I, I would agree with that. And we're I'd dating this because you know we're recording it on Sunday. But whoever loses tonight, I, I think the season is pretty much in the in the in the tank for playoff hopes for whoever loses tonight. I, I just have no faith in this Bears team nope, right now. Neither do I. So it, say they re- do some ridiculous table run thing and they get to the playoffs. I'm still going into that game thinking, well, Mitch isn't going to be good tonight. And if they have I my nightmare scenario, Mitch is okay enough where they're like, right. well. Yep, yep, yep. Totally but they, I think they have to commit to him seriously at the end of this year. The way the contract is set up, they either commit to him or they don't, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Ryan Pace should not be the one to make that decision. And the problem is they don't have a first-round pick this year. But it is the McCaskey family. And other than the Trestman thing, they tend to keep coaches or general managers way too long. So don't expect any movement with Ryan Pace or, or Matt Nagy. They'll be back. Yeah. And it's sort of this suffocating feeling. Yep. You get to schedule a home and home series with any team for both football and basketball for Illinois. Who do you pick? Mm, home and home. So I want to go with the team that you can beat. I'm going to start with football. Right. So football, I would go with a team that you can beat. Basketball, I wouldn't just because the quality win thing is rewarded in basketball, whereas in football, it's not. I would go with for regional for proximity the fact i know some people down there and that fans for each team could commute one way or the other would be louisville i think that the way that those two programs are right now they're on fairly equal footing at the moment louisville got bowl eligible yesterday great work by satterfield Satterfield, that's right because he came from appalachian state it's a it's a rebuild they were terrible under petrino again just now and six wins that was a pretty good hire by louisville because they've been they've tended to go with the splashier sort of thing um charlie strong was a great hire of course that was after petrino i'm trying to think of this petrino charlie strong then Petrino, then Petrino again. again, and then was and that now, it? Satterfield. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're both eligible. I think that th- that would actually be a pretty interesting home and home series of those two teams. And I don't really know. I know their ACC and Illinois has played North Carolina recently, for example. But that is one conference where I'm not ever that sure how good the teams are. There's Clemson. There's some decent teams like Virginia, and Illinois has them coming up in the schedule. I'm going Louisville because that way you could travel to the away game if you wanted to. Nice little football stadium down there. Yeah. And vice versa. I think that'd be cool. I would say Iowa State. You've Ooh, got a few man. staff connections. Iowa State has been much better in recent years, but this year they've kind of regressed a little bit back down from, you know, people are talking about win the Big 12 Iowa State, and they're more like a 7-5 and five Iowa State. But Beat that would Texas. Be, that would be, yeah, they did. That, that would be fun because it would be close. It's not a rivalry, but I don't think they have hardly ever played. No, that would be inter- I don't think they have ever. I, so I'd least, like that. Yeah, if I had a look at a media guide for that. As far as basketball for a home and home. Hmm. Kansas. That's what I picked. Yeah, but you see, I mean, there's nothing to lose in a situation right. like that, right? You get Kansas to come here, Bill Self to come right. back here. That w- so like in my mindset, I'm like, well, I'll pick Alabama for football. But the problem with that is those actually count against you because you're just trying to get to six in bowl eligibility. Yeah, whereas in basketball, one loss to Kansas on the road isn't going to matter. That's why I like the Arizona thing, even though you didn't yeah. acclimate yourself well in the second half. Or the Gonzaga thing that they had. Let's go Kansas. I agree okay. with that because if you're going to, in basketball, it's not the same thing. In football, you want the winnable game. In basketball, just throw caution in the wind. And then maybe you get that marquee victory come Selection yep. Sunday. 
Okay, another Madden time machine type thing. You possess mm-hmm. a time machine. This is an interesting kind of sp- specific question. Yes. You possess a time machine. Rank which Illini games you would use it to catch a live viewing of from the past 10 years. So a it has live to viewing be, in the stadium or in the so arena? So you can teleport to watch this game in person. Rank your top three or five, but it has to be from this past decade. I'll start with one. <laughs> last I week? Three or five. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say last week and... Just because I can, when I look back at comebacks in particular, and it could be the Arizona game in 05, which I know that the Illinois-Michigan State football game is, I'm not comparing the two, okay? But let's go back to that 05 game. That would be number one for me, but that's more than 10 years, right? right. So we, we can't right. use that. But what's great about sports or moments like that are riding that wave where you are literally in the pits of despair. And then you are at the top of the mountain. Yeah, within five like an later, hour. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, an hour in the case of the football game. So I would maybe, like you said, go with the game last week because I know how I would feel at halftime even after the Josh touchdown. Mm-hmm. Thinking, ugh, whatever. Right. You know, and, and knowing. And, and here's the thing, too. 20-minute halftimes just absolutely kill me in college yeah. football. If that game last a, week was three hours and 45 minutes. Right. And as fun as that last hour was, mm-hmm. let's not pretend the first two hours and 45 minutes were fun at all. A drag. It was a total drag. So, yeah, let's go with that for number one last week because the last 10 years, there's not a lot of other games That's the tricky thing is I'm, I'm thinking back and I jotted a few down, but they're not spectacular just because how many road Illini events have there been over the past 10 years where you think, I got to have been there for that? Now, I wasn't here for the Wisconsin game, so I could say That's that, true. You know, um, but I, I still feel like I would have left the stadium that day thinking, what the hell just right, happened? Right. Not actually buying into the fact that right. something was changing, you know? I wrote down Maui 2012 just because you won the yeah. tournament. That would have been fun. You beat Bay, or, uh, Butler. You beat USC by a bajillion. Or at Gonzaga. Or at Gonzaga. Year. Or at Hawaii. That whole trip, if I could combine that whole trip, I think would have been fun. And I was not at State Farm Center for the Indiana game. Oh, wow. We, we did a T&J from Fat City. And I had to take the station van yeah. back to the uh, radio station. The game was a 6 o'clock tip. My parents went, so I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll just go home and watch <laughs> it. Just thinking ho-hum because you were 2-7 and seven at the time. Yeah. But if, yeah, if I were to transport, let's go Maui, I would put the at Gonzaga game pretty close there, too, mm-hmm. for basketball, because that was a fun was. game. Just mm-hmm. smoked him. Yep. Yeah, let's go with that. Michigan State for football, and then Gonzaga. I guess I also. would say the bowl wins, but like yeah, the Craft Fight Hunger Bowl, am I really going to use a time machine to go teleport back to that? I, I guess the RG3 bowl, when you smoked them, would be fun. I couldn't have cared, what is it, could have cared less about that game? Yeah. Or could you not. You could not have cared I less. I could not have cared less. That's yeah. right. I could not have cared less about that craft fight hunger bowl. Yeah. I had it on, but I just had. And at the same time, Illinois got smoked at Purdue in basketball. The same exact time. Yeah. Because you were on ESPN with the bowl game and ESPN 2 with the basketball game. So people were flipping back and forth. Freaking Weber. Um, I don't know what else. I don't either. Maybe the Maryland basketball upset in Madison Square Garden last year. It didn't mean anything. It did, but it didn't. Right, right, right. There was no carryover effect, really. Um, I don't want to go to the Ohio State game last year. Ohio State, that atmosphere is Center Or Valley City Arena. No, yes. Uh, I would say the comeback last week in Maui. And then Atkinsag is another good one. Okay, yeah. But that's the last decade of Illinois sports, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) At least road events, anyways. John Gross's first year and at Michigan State. Most likely Illini football finish for each of the scenarios and give me the bowl game that you'd think they'd go to with each one as well. So the most likely we would agree, I think, is lose to Iowa, beat Northwestern. Right. So and at that he, point, let's say pinstripe bowl. So he wrote them out. Lose to Iowa, beat Northwestern. Yes. You're saying pinstripe? Yeah. Okay. Win against Iowa and lose to Northwestern. Probably the same thing, right? No, but I, I don't see that. I think if you beat Iowa, you beat Northwestern. 
Right. Uh, yeah, I think the more likely, I mean, if there's some sort of heartbreaking loss to Iowa, like double overtime, you lose to Iowa in heartbreaker, that's the only situation where I see a negative carryover effect. Yeah. I think these two games, after bye week especially, are in a bubble. Or like a blown call to end the game. Yeah. That would be unfortunate. Yeah. And it would have to be really heartbreaking. I, I think just losing to Iowa, beating Northwestern 7-5. and five. Yeah. And those two would be either Pinstripe or Redbox. I think Pinstripe is the better bowl, but they're pretty interchangeable, right? Yeah, and do you want warm weather? Do you want New York City on December 27th? Right. But there's something fun about New York City It as is. Well. It's Yankee Stadium. I mean, that's pretty cool. And then I think you face uh, an ACC team, the likes of North Carolina or, or Pitt. Or Florida State. That'd be fun. That would be fun because with Florida State, they, they don't have a coach. They got the name. They stink. And we could always say we beat Florida yep. State in a bowl game. I would love that. Uh, lose out. Quick lane, right? I don't think. I guess that would in be in terms a, of if we're projecting a bowl for if they lose out. And the good news is you'd play a bad team in the quick lane bowl to maybe get some of your mojo back. But I say bad team. What like, if they play Eastern Michigan? Is that even allowed <laughs> that you play the same team twice in I'd a like season? I'd like some revenge. The fact that they could win eight games in a season where you lost to Eastern Michigan at home is insane to me. It but. is insane. And I'm trying to think of anything similar to that because usually the great years that Illinois football's had, Rose Bowl, Sugar Bowl, there were no bad losses. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, the bad loss for Illinois in the Rose Bowl year was at Iowa. Mm-hmm. That Iowa team still went. It would have been like if they'd lost to Ball State that year and still gone to the Rose Bowl. Exactly. Uh, went out. Well, I, we I still at, say like pinstripe though. I mean, and if we put a percentage to that, of maybe went the out, Gator Bowl. Yeah, I guess that would be a notch below Outback, right? Yep. And in terms of the percentage, it's all about this weekend. Because if yeah. you win this weekend, there's no doubt you're beating Northwestern. I would think right? so. Senior day so. at home, riding off a five-game win streak. Which we don't know the time for that. So do you think we're going to get... Because the 2.30 <sighs> slot on the Saturday after Thanksgiving is actually not prime. And that's no. why I'm thinking we'll get and that. And that's what happened last year with that game. That's right. When Cam yeah. Thomas led you down the field for a touchdown on the first drive. We're going to be in Ann Arbor. Well, outside of Ann Arbor for that Saturday for Thanksgiving weekend. So I won't be back for the game. But... Um, there was this part of me like, well, maybe I go to the Michigan-Ohio State game just to see what Ooh. it's like. Well, the cheapest ticket there is 140 bucks. Oh. And it may be, in fact, that Illinois plays Northwestern at eleven, anyways. But um, we're gonna—that's gonna be pretty. That'd be a nice, like, just life event to have said you've gone to. It, it would be. I wish that Michigan had just lost, lost one less game, because then, then it would, it would totally be a playing game. Right. Yep, but yep. now you need Penn State to win at Ohio State. Yep. Because Michigan can't even technically play spoiler. And if Penn State beats Ohio State, then it's just a mess where nobody gets in, more so than the doors wide open, right? Yeah, that's true. I do wonder if Michigan won out. So they're eight and two, is that right? They're eight and two. So if they win the next two, and then they beat Wisconsin, eleven and, and two with a win over Ohio State and Wisconsin, and what are the and Notre Dame? I don't know what that's worth anymore. I don't know. Notre Dame just smoked Navy. They did, but right. I mean, I'd put them in over like a two-loss Oregon team if you're debating those two, just because the Pac-12 is weak. Right, and you aren't going to get Alabama in now with Tua's injury. No, I don't think. No, no. Maybe he'll slide to the second round, and the Bears can pick him. <sighs> <laughs> I don't think he slides to the second. I, I wonder if he's. They're speculating it's the kind of injury where he's not going to be the same. Yeah, and that's frightening. I yeah, I, that I hate that because that it, it's not like Nick Saban did anything wrong in the post game. That was tough. That's like it's. It wasn't like the Derrick Rose thing, right? Where not you're at like, all. Why is he in there when they're up twenty with five minutes left? You Thanks, saw Tom him. Thibodeau. Yeah, really. You saw him vehemently arguing with Saban to put him back in the game, and it was thirty-five seven. It wasn't fifty to seven in the second quarter. Yeah. So it's two minutes. Two-minute drill, and they want to try to get some right. reps, and you don't figure he's going to have a career-threatening no. injury. It's a blameless it, situation, but it sucks. Yeah, it does. Who of the returning football players not currently playing a large role this year will make the biggest impact on the 2020 season? 
Hmm. My immediate answer would be Isaiah Williams if he somehow wins a starting job, obviously, because he goes from not playing to your starting quarterback, but I don't know if he's going to. I don't know if he is either, but I do think that he'll play a role next year yep. because you won't have to coddle him. You won't have to think about, well, we only got four games right. before he loses his redshirt. You're going to have to play him, and you aren't going to let a, a tool like that just sit on the bench. So I would still say Isaiah Williams. Mm-hmm. I Brandon Other Peters that, has shown enough where I feel comfortable with him starting, yeah, yeah. but I think that you do need to get snaps for Isaiah Williams. In a college football, you can do it. So you why lose, not get goofy? Th- you lose three of your four defensive linemen. So I guess I'd say for someone who has to play a larger role just by necessity, a Calvin Avery. Yeah, and I right? and is this question about anyone on the roster right now? Yeah. Okay. Because I was going to say go out the grad transfer well, sure. market and yeah. get some yeah, get your again, Jamel which, president and somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Which, if you think about it, I actually think that the way this season has gone is going to set them up nicely for more grad transfers. Yeah. And not I, only has the season gone well, but the transfers that you brought in have worked really well. So yeah, exactly. why, why wouldn't that continue to be a sign? Uh, man, I, I'd still go Isaiah Williams. I know that's the boring answer. I, I think out of the all the guys coming back in, hopefully Reggie Love is like a stud. Yeah, freshman or running or, back. or running back because you're going to lose Corbin and. You might lose Dre Brown because he's a red shirt. He had two medical red shirts, so he, he can, has one more year of eligibility. He can technically apply for a six year of eligibility, but I don't know if that's something that's been discussed or mm. not. But he's probably going to graduate. Isaiah Williams. He's also like twenty seven, so why wouldn't he graduate? Oh, well, but... Marquez Beeson. Let's go Marquez yeah, because yeah. he will probably yeah, start from right. day one. You're right. You're right. He'll okay. have a big impact. And then Isaiah Williams, number two, and that's kind of how you drew it up. What was the moment you knew you were truly sucked into Illini fandom? I saw this yesterday when the replies were coming in. I had, to, I had to think about it. I could say the Andy Kaufman shot in 93. And oddly enough, my dad and I were sitting together. My mom and sister had left the stadium. What happened right before the Andy Kaufman shot was Iowa misses a shot and it bounces off Deion Thomas's shoulder into the, hoop. Little, little. No, oh. into the hoop. No, into the hoop. <laughs> and I, I did not understand. I have at, no knowledge of this game whatsoever. But you I've know seen, the Andy Kaufman I've shot, I've seen right? the shot. I've yeah. watched it, but I have no context for the game. But keep in mind what the context of this game is that this is a few years after Iowa got you on probation. Right, right, right. So the blood is boiling mm-hmm. and, and in that stadium. I mean, six-year-old me didn't quite recognize it, but people are thinking we're going to lose to this freaking program after it bounces off Deion Thomas, the one who was caught on the phone with Bruce Pearl, right. off it bounces off his shoulder. And then the shot, right? So you could say that because that was the first time I've been in the stadium where it just went nuts. For me, though, I'd probably go, as odd as it sounds, 1999 Big Ten Tournament. Okay. That weekend that run. was, yeah, that weekend run, knowing that Frank and Marcus and Brian Cook were in the wings and that this Corey Bradford kid could play. And getting to Sunday, and even though you got your, the doors blown off of you against Michigan State, that was a weekend that set up the best eight-year stretch of Illini yeah. fandom I've ever had. So I would go with that because that was right when I would have been in eighth grade. Or is that right? Seventh, eighth grade. And when you really get into sports, you you kind of yep, graduate from just passive I, viewing, yep, right? Yep, yep. So 1999 Big Ten Tournament. So I was going to say, you know, I'm dating myself here because obviously I'm only 22, so I'm not very old. Um, same for me. You know, I'm into it and I'm watching it. You know, in 05, I was eight. So, like, I generally remember it, but I'm not, like, enthusiastically knowing every person on the roster. Right. Mock announcing the game with the Sports Center highlights. and the, you, you know what I mean? Like, sure. once you hit that teenage year as a kid, like 12 maybe, you're really into it then. My first ever football game was the Ball State game, homecoming in 07. Yeah. It was my first Ball ever eligibility. football game. So, that was fun. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say the first, like, holy cow, this is amazing moment was actually in 2009 when Michigan State came here and College Game Day was here. Okay. And yeah, I went I to that, that game and they, you know, they rushed the court. 
So that was, and then beat Wisconsin. A well, few I was going to say, and then the follow up. I remember just being absolutely exuberant about that win for the next like three days, just riding off that. Then you come home after school, you know, do your homework, whatever, and watch them on BTN upset Wisconsin and have be the first team to beat them in the Kohl Center in like a ridiculous number of years. Right. That week was probably the most high energy I'd ever been about Illinois sports as a young kid. What I feel bad for you is that there wasn't ultimately a, a payoff. Nope. Because they didn't make the tournament. Nope. And then the next year they beat UNLV in the first round and lost to Kansas in the second round, right? Which was a okay. It was a competitive was fine, game it, against know, Kansas. But, but you that's what really win. sparked me into uber fanatical interest in Illinois sports. I hope you get your payoff because I've had my payoff. This is where the last decade yeah. has sucked, but I, I still had enough to I fall back I just missed on. the payoff, right? Because like I went to the Ball State game and I remember watching the Rose Bowl, but I got really into it in 09. So, the Ohio State game when they beat number one that I year? Don't really, I don't even remember it. If really? I said I remembered it, I'd be lying. Okay. I'm sure I watched it, but I don't remember it. Oddly enough for me in 1998, which is a lot of people's favorite Illini team because it was Kevin Turner, Matt Heldman, a mm-hmm. bunch of dudes that were seniors. Lon Kruger coached them up. They won the Big Ten. And there was a game that they beat Michigan State and Mateen Cleaves and those guys at home. And I don't know why, but I don't remember 1998 very well. Hmm. It's just there's, there's like blind spots for a, some reason. A weird blind yeah. spot for me. But anything beginning with the 1999 Big Ten tournament, that was when it became the thing. Yeah. yeah. And I remember when Derek Demke hit the upright <laughs> at Penn <laughs> no. State. I told you this before. I threw a chair yeah. in my house. And that, that was like my first emotionally fueled anger moment. I had to do some drywalling after the Illinois-Arizona Elite Eight <laughs> game. But they had won, so I was like, eh, I'll drywall all right, day. I'm right, okay. right. I'm, that's I'm a, a happy that's a guy. That's a fun drywall. That's a fun drywall. Right? Ever since then, though, like I can't remember <laughs> anything but upsetting emotional moments as a young sports fan. Yeah, well, you're due, as Harry would like to say. I guess I am. We'll see. Last one's for you. Hmm. Since you've been a teacher, what's one positive and one negative observation you've had about this generation of children? This is a great question. question. This is a great question. I'll give you the positive right now. I don't think they're that different from my generation or any generation that came before it. Um, Kids tend to be fairly resilient, and especially when you consider a lot of the home situations that they have, they're remarkably resilient, right? So never sell kids short, no matter what generation, for how resilient they can be. The negative, I don't know. Um, again, nothing that really stands out to me. I think even I expected, as idealistic as I might have been going into education, I expected there were going to be certain things about this generation that would make me feel like an old grizzled man. Yeah. Right? I haven't really had that. I guess the only thing I could say is a negative that I'm going to try to watch when I have my own kids is I will try to foster as much independence as possible. I try to tell my classes that you know before you ask a question, Take the five seconds, problem solve. And if you still got that question, let's talk about it. But don't ask it right away. Because often it's something that they could figure out themselves. But there's this sort of, uh, for some students, a need to kind of hold their hand through it all. And it's like, no, 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 no. You know, part of school is not just learning what's in the book, but learning socially, emotionally, how you function in society. Asking questions all the time is not the way to do it, right? So I want them to be comfortable asking questions, but I don't want them to feel like, uh, uh, Right. How do I do that? And it's like, you know. I'm just remembering ask. many kids in my classes, probably me as well, asking the question that is right at the top of the page. Yeah. How, or on how the long smart... does this have to be? It says right there. Yes. <laughs> you know, on the pages. smart board, every, I tell them <laughs> everything you need to know is on the smart board. <laughs> I'm, I put the directions on there. They're very straightforward. And that would be it. So the positives would be that they are resilient. Don't sell them short. They're perceptive. They know what's going mm-hmm. on, even if they can't write a big essay about you know the world economy. or They know what's going on. They get it. But the negative would be that there might be, for this generation, a bit more of 
and this is honestly more to do with, I think, helicopter parents than the parents that aren't all that involved in the first place. The the coddling of these yep, kids yep. only feeds into this, please hold my hand. Mm-hmm. I don't know Checking. why they have a British. No, no, no. Please hold my hand, Mr. Carpenter. <laughs> Checking with you before they do anything and everything, yeah. right? And, and it's it's rare, but it is something I've noticed. That would be the negative thing because I can, <laughs> I keep my cool. I, I very rarely get I was going to say, do you ever actually like, not lose it, obviously, but do you ever actually get frustrated? <laughs> like, is oh, there sure. ever a moment where they go, whoa, Mr. Carpenter? <laughs> I try to say those moments. I try to do a little coachy kind of thing. Because if you do them where... too much, then, it, then they're meaningless, right? Exactly. You know, Bruce Weber, he had the same scratchy voice. He was always yelling. So how is it going to have the same impact <laughs> right, right. in game 25 as it is game one? Yep. So my thought is, you know, I pick my spots. And it's real when it gets really bad is when I'll, gotcha. I'll respond. But I try to always, in that moment of frustration, scale it back to, you know, and I expect better from you. Like I'm trying to, I'm <laughs> That's trying where to. I don't think I'd be a very good teacher because I kind of just go off the deep end with that. I wouldn't bring it back. Yeah, no, I I try to bring it back to now. <laughs> you can do this, okay? Because it's you like know. saying after Illinois loses a big game, but they can come back and win next week, and mm. I can't get there when I I'm get upset it. about I get that. So. so that's a great question, though. Yeah. Overall, though, net positive. I really am Good. not discouraged at all by the way kids are. Well, I guess we solved stuff. We solved a few things today. I love it. So uh, it was a bi-week extravaganza. We got Chuck Kaplinski coming up next talking movies. So awesome. I think anyone that just has a passing interest in movies, my thought was, for this podcast in particular, anyone going up to Iowa, let's say, three and a half hour trip, well, this podcast is going to be doing some quick math here. I mean, well, at least two and a half hours. Yeah. I mean, the longest one I think we got. So you got this nice little movie thing at the end. Plus, if you want to listen, are, everybody likes movies, right? Who doesn't like There's movies. a bunch of good movies coming out. One of the most troubling things anyone ever told me was, I don't like Fargo. <laughs> and I remember thinking, who has a, first off, who has a strong negative Harry? opinion about Fargo? Because Harry was the one who said he doesn't like no country for old men. And you know what? I, I went to break as he said it. I'm okay with that, more so than Fargo, because Fargo is fairly accessible. Yeah. It's not yeah, like no, it's right, right. It's not like Godfather where you kind of have to, yeah. um, I don't know, adapt and learn as you're watching it. No Country for Old Men. There's hardly any musical score in it. There's right. not much dialogue. Right. It's very much. It's no, much more that. like a painting than I a movie. That, yeah, but Fargo is a pretty uh, stereotypical movie. It's right? tightly scripted. Yeah, yeah. It's got a great plot. Got great acting. What do you want? <laughs> I don't That's like, like Fargo. Like The Empire Strikes Back isn't a good movie, it, it, right? Or like you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark sucks. <laughs> It's like, well, how? Objectively, how does it suck? How did you not yeah, enjoy that's, that? That's troubling. Yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm sure I would trust that individual. Toy story. <laughs> Toys talking. What's that about? It's just like, are you yeah. trying to be negative? Yeah, for right. It's movie? not like an artsy piece. It's just a formulaic good movie. So what I do is I give my five, not top five movies of all time, because that's like near impossible. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I couldn't do that either. And what I went with was a top five list of directors and one representative movie from each. Okay. And Fargo was one I couldn't choose between that or No Country for Old Men, and I, I actually had to kind of do a sales job on Chuck, who says that hey, Fargo is really good. He's like, it's not my favorite. No Country for Old Men is. He's like, but this is this made me feel warm and fuzzy inside. He said, but there's a lot of smart people I respect that I've talked to about Fargo being one of the you know like greatest movies yeah. ever. Yeah. And I was like, all right, yes, good. maybe that's I know good. a thing or yeah. two because that I go back to that movie two or three times a year. Oh, that's a great movie. There's so many good movies, and there's still a few that I've never seen. From the Coen Brothers? Well, no, I just, or just mean, in general. in general, those types of movies. Like, I've never seen Taxi Driver. You need to see Taxi Driver, especially uh, with The Irishman to, coming out. Right. You have Netflix, right? Right, yep. Watch yep. it this afternoon. Yep, The Irishman's getting really good reviews. Yeah, we talked about that, Joe and we Pesci's also talked about the Scorsese Marvel thing. Right, because he says that they aren't movies, right? Well, the, the way he says it, and we'll get in greater detail with this, he doesn't criticize, he says they're well done, they're great at what they do. It's not for me, 
It's for some people. And his criticism is that with this whole franchise mode sort of thing going on in the movie theaters and the multiplexes, that you have the major studios less inclined to budget for mid-level movies, for things that have nothing to do I with... I get that. Right. I mean, it, there, there is a very large... Uh, Disney brand sense to everything Marvel related. Well, and right? now with Disney Plus out, and even the way they're branding it, hey, eh? we got Disney, Pixar, right. Star Wars, Marvel. Everything is synergistic. Yeah, and has you have to, you know, I'm worried. I don't care because I'm watching it, but I'm worried sure. that they're going to say something is going to happen in the Mandalorian that affects Rise of the Skywalker and oh, I know. Rise of Skywalker, and you have to watch that to watch it. Now I'm already going to be watching it, so it doesn't matter to me. But that's another one of those brand synergy backlash things that could kind of come back to bite them. Yeah, no, but I, they I don't can totally care, see right? That. Oddly enough, Disney Plus they they're doing the logos that they have to promote it are Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, and National Geographic, which is cool. But I mean, I'd watch some National it's Geographic. Completely stuff. like in the background, like I don't even realize it's on there. Yeah, like it'd just be like uh, Disney, Pixar, NPR, right? Marvel, and, and Star at the, Wars. At the same National time, they've got every Simpsons ever on there, and it they feels do. like they haven't promoted that at all. Which that which doesn't is make also sense to me. to me. There is one criticism they have, but I watched the, ratio? the wi- Yeah, I watched the widescreen version anyway, which I know cuts off a few things. My dad is extremely bothered by it. And he said he's not going to watch them on there until they fix it. Wow, he's, he's those, not alone. He's, he's one of those alone. people that can't stand when it's like 480p instead of 1080p, or when it's the ratio <laughs> is switched because he feels like he's missing something. I get that. It yeah, doesn't yeah. bother me to that extent. Like I still watched a few the other night, but. Back in the day, when you went to Blockbuster, all the old VHS copies, they were pan and scan. Yeah. Black bar. Well, sorry. No black bars because all the TVs were boxes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 they were big, thick. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I remember as a kid thinking, what are with these on AMC or uh, Turner Classic Movies? Yep. They'd have the black bars on the top and yep. bottom. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> My TV's not that big. I can't see these people. Right, because they were a square. They were, it's like, oh, TVs that's, weren't a, right, a that's rectangle. How they, that's how the yeah. artist intended it. So we got Chuck Kaplinski coming up next. Got to remind you, DP Doe, uh, State Farm Agent Brian Hansen, and FourthAndKirby.com. Of course, Alana Inquirer and Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Uh, Trevor, when we come back next week, I would love to be able to talk about the biggest road win since and i think it'd be bigger than michigan state quality of opponent and it would be a true signifier that illinois has in fact turned the corner especially if it wasn't the largest comeback in school history and i don't mean that as a negative but if you actually just won wire to wire control the game as much as you could at iowa that would be a sight to behold i'm really craving a mcrib I would love to have a McRib on Saturday. <laughs> Maybe I'll try one too. Yeah. So that's that's the goal. 200 level listeners, here's our pack. Have a McRib on Saturday. McDonald's would be like, why the hell did McRib sales spike at 3 p.m. <laughs> Central Standard Time on Saturday, November 23rd? Well, we'll know why. Trevor, we'll see you next week. It is the 200 level. All right, it is the 200 level live from the basement, and it is bye week for Illini football, and there's not an Illini basketball game until Monday, so we had to figure out something to do, but what I'm excited about for the 200 level is branching out a little bit and not just talking Illini basketball and Illini football. So to do that, brought in Chuck Kaplinski, local film critic, uh, to talk movies, which, Chuck, I can't pretend to be an expert, but uh, or maybe even a film buff, but I guess the first question I would ask you is for yourself. The transition from just a fan of movies, just one who kind of, you know, passively consumes it as entertainment to film buff. Was there a singular moment? Was there kind of a process that you took for that? Um, you know, I, it, it just seemed to me to be something that was always there. Uh, my father, 
always had WGN on when I was a kid. Now, when I was a kid, we lived in Kankakee, and we had maybe seven or eight channels on TV. So obviously not too many choices. And WGN out of Chicago ran the movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s every night at 7, every night at 10.30, all day on Sunday. And my father always had those movies on. So, I mean, it was either watch that or, or watch nothing. And just from having it on all the time, I couldn't help become interested. I mean, from eight, nine years old, I was going to the library reading about movies because it was just so prevalent in the household. So I, I can't think of anything to where it was a transition. It was just always there. It was always a part uh, of my life. For me, there was this transition probably out of, you know, oh, Jurassic Park is a fun movie. And I like the Star Wars trilogy to Alfred Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And it started with a conversation that my mom had about how when she was younger, the birds creeped her out. So right. we go to Blockbuster. Remember Blockbuster back in the day? Uh -huh. And rented the birds. And even from that young age and the sort of archaic special effects, it sort of uh, stayed with me. Sure. And, I mean, just, and then you notice these things like the absence of music mm -hmm. and just the sparseness with that movie. Then I got in this Hitchcock phase. Right. And I got a few Hitchcock books. And then I watched Vertigo. And I'm 10. I don't get the relationship dynamics right, 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 in that right. movie, but it, the visuals, the music, the score from Bernard Herrmann, yes. it just it, the film is lush in every way, shape, mm -hmm. and form. And I think for me, that was probably the moment where I realized, okay, this is, without sounding you know pretentious about it, it's kind of art. It is art, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, completely, when it's done well. Uh, but I, th I think also, you know, when if you watch enough movies... You start to be able to, as you say, you have that that moment where, oh, this is this is not like the other things I've seen. Mm -hmm. This is not like the ninety percent of the fodder that is at the multiplex. Uh, this is something that that is on another level. Uh, and then just watching movies in general, you can recognize that. And those are those are the aha moments I live for. Uh, and as I get older, and as I've seen more movies, uh, those aha mo moments. Aren't as, aren't as prevalent, unfortunately. I've okay. seen too many movies. It's a okay. problem. <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, is it just a case of quantity of movies that you've absorbed, or is it a diminishing quality from the movies in general? I think it's both, probably. But okay. I think it's more so that I've just watched too many movies. Okay. Uh, right. You know, I was actually, I was in New York last week for an event with Netflix, uh, and they had invited critics from around the country. And we actually were having this exact same conversation uh, that... Movies that are getting a lot of pre-hype, a lot of buzz out of Toronto and things. And one person said, well, I saw it and I thought it was okay, but I didn't think it was. And, and that's what I run into, the things that don't live up to the hype, the things that uh, the studios want you to believe are groundbreaking. Very few things are groundbreaking anymore. Uh, so I probably need to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, a recent example of that would have been Moonlight, which I understood why it was as praised as it was because i mean you know and again not coming from a film expert but technically it was a beautiful film sure. and uh you know it had a, a pretty affecting story and great performances but it hasn't stayed with me and if i were to i got a top five i'm gonna throw it to you later okay okay and and it's pretty much five directors and a representative film from each but moonlight would be an example of something in the last couple of years where oh i can't wait until that drops on netflix or someplace i can watch it i didn't go see it at the art and we'll get to the art later, uh -huh. which is just a whole other thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, th I, I understand what you mean by that, because uh, even as a, a rock music fan and a, a musician, it is it is becoming harder and harder to find those, I don't know if you'd say diamonds in the rough, but just true greatness that is original and not derivative. Yeah. 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 You know, there's, 
and that's why you appreciate them. They are not like the same old thing. Uh, you, you tell that people are um, take the time to actually put thought into it. It's not a product. I guess that's the big thing anymore with movies, the product that comes out of Hollywood. And then, you know, those independent voices that uh, even if they go through the Hollywood chain are able to still somehow, you know, be unique. I think we'll talk Scorsese now, if that's okay, because you're talking oh, about- Oh, good, because that's exactly what I was <laughs> intimating. <laughs> you're talking about products and the whole thing the last month, really, maybe two, three weeks ago, story comes out where he was asked about, I don't know if he was directly asked about it, but he at least talked about it. He was. It, it okay. was an interview in England. About the Marvel films. Mm-hmm. And I even have a friend who says, man, we need to have Marvel movie night. I've seen Iron Man 1 and 2, and that's it. And to me, it's so daunting to go through the whole thing. Sure. And I don't have that pull to go watch them. Despite all the people that tell me, oh, Avengers Endgame was incredible, it might very well be. And it's probably expertly done in terms of, as a product, it's probably expertly crafted as best as it could be. And that's what Scorsese was essentially saying, was that these are well done. They're more like theme parks, though. And he delineates movies and cinema. So let's start, let's define cinema, I guess. If we were to give it a Webster's definition, what would cinema be (laughs) versus movies? Oh, gosh. Um well, you know, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about two weeks after this whole thing hit in an effort to explain himself as far as what the difference was. And his contention was that cinema is more of an emotionally immersive experience, something that appeals to your emotions, but also your thought process. Your, it's a much more organic connection with the characters on screen is what he's saying. And also it's unpredictable. Cinema, he says, should not, you know, follow a rote uh, plan as far as what the movies are. And, you know, the Marvel films do that. They are constructed that way. Uh, And it's funny because I saw The Irishman recently. And it was not too long after this whole thing exploded. And as I'm watching The Irishman, 20 minutes in, I'm like, aha, this is the difference. This is exactly what he's talking about. The camera is still. He's taking his time. And he, the funny thing about Scorsese, he's known for these sort of quick cuts. And uh, it was a Thelma Schoonmaker is the editor. Schoonmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Schoonmaker. And uh, Goodfellas is often the one that's referred to and probably the most entertaining movie he's done. A lot of uh, kinetic energy there. But there's so many parts like Raging Bull, for example, at the kitchen table, mm-hmm. just a still camera and just let the yes. actors do their thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it's the difference, I think, between being invited into a story and bludgeoned by a story. I like the Marvel films. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I like them. But it's a different experience. And it would be nice not to have that quick cutting. It would be nice to be able to just slow down every once in a while. Uh, You know, it's a generational thing. You know, I've how many times, I mean, you you like music. I know that's your Mm -hmm. passion. You know, did your parents ever say to you, gosh, what is that garbage you're listening to? You know what's funny is that was actually a, a common thread between my dad and I. And there was an there's this thing that we joke about now. My sister's five years older. And I'm maybe three. She's eight years old. Right. And New Kids on the Block came to town. It was the first concert I ever went to because I was young enough. I had to go with the family. Sure. But my dad got into a debate with my eight-year-old sister about you 2 who was coming off the heels of Joshua Tree, Rattle and Hum, or New Kids on the Block, who's going to have more staying power. And we joke about it. She was eight years old. She was eight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We joke about it now. but um, And obviously, the answer is, you know, well, you 2 did. But uh, nonetheless... That was one thing that my dad. It was like Zeppelin. That was the that was the hook, right? You uh, two to an extent. So the music thing has never really been much, though. You know, I get into middle school and Kid Rock drops Double Without a Cause, and it's got the parental advisory sticker, and then Marshall Mathers LP from Eminem. Sure, 
they wouldn't have gotten that. I wasn't sure if I got it myself. But certainly with movies, the age thing, a lot of the people I talked about Marvel tend to be, you know, maybe five, six, seven years younger than I am. And that might even be the line. I don't know. As as a 33-year-old, it doesn't hit me as much as it does then. Well, I think the bad thing about this whole controversy was is that there was, and, you know, I'm going to sound old right here, this generation of bloggers, Twitterers, or whatever, they have to respond right away without thought. It's reactionary. And it's like, you know, he wasn't really slamming them. Just slow down, listen to what the guy is saying. <laughs> you know, I think that they missed the point and created something out of nothing. And if they would just kind of slow down and listen to what he says, maybe try watching one of his films or something he's trying, you know, they might discover something new. He's the one guy that has enough clout to say that. And, and, and I agree. I thought it was a fairly innocuous thing to say. Yeah. What he ultimately said was, you know, different strokes for different folks. And exactly. there was a difference here. And he still was very, even in that New York Times op-ed, was saying, you know, they, they do it well. There's very talented people working on these things. He was very, yeah, yeah very complimentary. So The Irishman, I, I, I was telling you before we hit record that I'm finishing up the book. Right. And in preparation, I got it a couple months ago. I'm, I, I kind of pick away at books. I need to be better about actually, you know, focusing on one. But in anticipation for the return of Scorsese with De Niro Pesci in a movie again, which I'm just cannot wait to see him in a film again. And then Harvey Keitel's got a bit role. He's in maybe three or four scenes. It's not a large part. And then Pacino. Real quick before The Irishman, you talk about the emotional part of of movies and what Scorsese's so so good at. I just watched Who's That Knocking at My Door. His oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah. A long time ago. And, you know, shoestring budget. They shot it over a course of years and it looks like his student film. Mm-hmm. And yet that movie, that 90 minute movie has stuck with me longer than most things I've seen in the movie theater in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that speaks to it. The emotional aspect of yeah. films. Yeah. And that, yeah, it's the whole cinema thing. So The Irishman's three hours and 20 minutes, not 90 minutes, three hours and 20 minutes. I, I'm fine. It could be four hours and I'd right. probably be okay with it. But I've also seen a few people say that it doesn't wear out its welcome, that it is a uh, every one of those 200 minutes is necessary. Is that accurate, you think? I have only one objection with the film. Uh, there is a small subplot that I don't think is developed well enough, and you'll understand it once you see it. But yeah, every minute is necessary. I mean, again, this is about taking your time. It's about getting into this man's story. It's like, you know, his cinema is about trying to put yourself in the shoes of these characters. And this covers three decades. You know, uh, it could have been a miniseries. And really, he shows a lot of restraint. You've read the book. You're reading the book. You Mm -hmm. know all the detail they go into. Uh, it's dense. It's very dense. But it's one of those things where as soon as I was watching, 20 minutes in, I'm sucked into this thing. And he takes his time, but it doesn't feel as though he's taking his time, if you know what I mean. He's he's a master of that. Even his longer films, like uh, I guess Gangs of New York might have been yes. a shade over two and a half hours, but yeah. it doesn't drag. You don't mind. No. You don't mind because you know he's going to tell a fascinating story. Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that. that. That is one that I, <laughs> I, I get the uh, sort of, yeah. Uh, you know, he's it, there's a lot of confidence there. And I think that's what I like about his filmmaking too. He's going to take his time. He's going to tell his story the way he wants to tell it. And that's unique. And I don't mind being taken for that ride because I know it's going to be substantial. It's always difficult to watch a movie and immediately call it a classic. And sure. I would probably, if I were to... I mean, my, my bias included here, but the last time I saw a movie and immediately thought instant classic was There Will Be Blood in 2007. 
very Kubrickian, you know, and it just has, uh, it grabbed me. That was one of my best theater experiences ever. No Country for Old Men came out within the month of that. So I remember a one-two punch of these movies that I thought those will probably be talked about a decade from now. So for The Irishman, you watch this movie, you know all the key players involved are just legends. Does it have that potential to be a movie that we talk about 20 years down the road the same way that we do a Goodfellas or a Taxi Driver or a Raging Bull? Uh, just real quick, my similar experience as you had with the Blair Witch Project. Really? As soon as I saw that, I was like, yes. Well, especially this at is, the time. I, I remember yeah. this is pre-Twitter. This is when anything yeah. pre-YouTube. So anything viral yeah. had to be still had that word of mouth aspect. Yeah. yeah, I remember seeing that and having that instant reaction. Okay. You know, I was th- as I was watching The Irishman, and we had a, I was at, fortunate enough to be at a press conference with all three, of the, with Scorsese, De Niro, and, and Pacino. And I was trying to ask a question. But, you know, John Ford made Westerns throughout his entire career. And towards the end, I mean, the criticism was, what are you doing, another Western? What are you doing this? You've done this before. No. As an older filmmaker, he looked at it from a different perspective. He brought different things in because he was living his life. And it's the same thing with The Irishman and Scorsese. Uh, I haven't heard the knock yet that, oh, it's just the same old thing. Because it's not. Yeah, we might be covering some of the same situations, but you're looking at it through the eyes of a 70-year-old man now. It's a different type of thing. You bring different aspects to your art as you age. And for that reason, uh, it's a very vital film. And yes, we will be talking about it for 20 years because we're going to be drawing those connections between, you know, Goodfellas and this and Mean Streets. You know, it's it's, it's a direct correlation or a direct connection with all three of those films to see how he's developing those themes. And to think of the expectations that this movie had, and they could have, not that Scorsese, I don't know what his worst movie would be. And that's that would be a whole, that's such an inverse discussion of what we normally have about what yeah, Scorsese Yeah, no, I'm curious, movies. yeah. But that with these expectations that kept piling up, and then the runtime comes out, and then I, I just worried that it was going to kind of bog down under its own weight. It was just going to have these sky-high expectations, and then you'd watch it and think, that was fine. It's more than fine. It's more than fine. And uh, at the press conference I was at, the one thing that they were most concerned of about was the technology, this whole uh, computer-generated program they're using to de-age them. They said that was the thing that they were concerned about being too much of a distraction and that, uh, you know, that, you know, you want to be into a movie. You don't want to be snapped out of that spell. But uh, they said that once they started working on it and seeing it, they, they were happy with it. And once you start watching this film, 10 minutes in, you're not even conscious of it. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it does live up to expectations. And, you know, he's used to that. And kudos to Netflix, I mean, for taking a chance on this thing. I mentioned Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Is that one of those that didn't? connect i mean and that's a difficult movie to connect with because all the people are just so you don't like awful anyone. yeah <laughs> and, and, well you know and that's the same thing with goodfellas though it, it is but here's the thing it is easy I, I don't know why this is i love the sopranos i love to consume any good mafia movie or tv show right but if i think about mafia storylines it's it's this idea that these guys live by a code and certainly it's a different moral code than most of us do but there's honor i mean we know it's true yes yeah. right but yeah. at least they are entering it with this mindset of honor and loyalty and then wolf of wall street is just pure vain 80s it's like American Psycho without the, you know, right, right, the bloodshed. Yeah. But uh, I'm thinking that that movie, I enjoyed it as a spectacle, though everyone in it was so empty yeah. that it didn't just naturally it was going to have that same connection. I like the film, uh, but th- there is that aspect of it. And I thought it was too long. 
Uh, I think that was the big objection I had. I thought it got a little redundant uh, with what all this guy was doing. Uh, but even, you know, uh, a movie that doesn't meet all expectations by him is obviously still worth watching and, and, and analyzing. On the subject of Scorsese before we, and we'll bounce back to him, because uh, Joker is a movie that came out that he was involved with and has a very Scorsese aesthetic to it. He was producing it. I, I had read he was going to direct it and then decided to produce it instead. And I'll ask about Joker later, which I know the controversy is somewhat faded in the you know month and a half since it came out. But uh, for Scorsese, when you look at that filmography, the, the easy ones that come out, of course, Main Streets being the first whoa moment, probably for him. Then he got Taxi Driver, he got Raging Bull. A movie that kind of fell through the cracks in the 80s was After Hours, which is this sort of almost right. slapstick comedy with Griffin mm-hmm. Dunn. Griffin Dunn, right? Yeah. And then, you know, he has kind of an experimental period before Goodfellas. And don't forget Passion of the Christ, which had or, its uh, own, Last Temptation. Last Temptation, yeah, which yeah. had its own controversy. What is the Scorsese movie that you think is most exemplary of his career? I, you know, my, and this is a bias as well, but I, I keep going back to Taxi Driver. Even as I get older, I keep going back to it. And it's just that sense of loneliness, that sense of alienation, that sense of fractured redemption that's in that film that I think resonates more with me as I get older. There's a realism there that, that, is hard to recreate and obviously that was the uh milieu that they're trying for the joker as well how well do you think they pulled it off todd phillips joker uh, certainly the performance as far as the look of it well the aesthetic i feel like they got oh yeah they got it exactly yeah in terms of and some of the criticisms i saw of joaquin phoenix as this character was that he wasn't sympathetic enough and really the one difference i watched taxi driver just a couple weeks ago travis bickle for the first 30 minutes you're like he's off Sure. But he's kind of likable, and uh, he's... You understand why he is the way he is. You do, and then his first interaction with Sybil Shepard, and and then the scene in the diner with him having pie, and he's charming, in a way. Yeah, awkward, shy. So you're heartbroken when he messes up on the date, and then the infamous (laughs) shot, of course, where he's calling her on the phone, and then Scorsese, I remember him talking about, they had to move the camera away, because it's just, we can't bear to watch it. We can't bear to watch his rejection. So Travis Bickle truly was sympathetic, despite what he turns into. Right. You know, Joker, I don't know if it was even going for that. Walking Phoenix is a tour de force. I mean, he's just, whatever he's in, I can't take my eyes off of his performance. But uh, how well do you think it pulled off what it wanted to? Or what? I guess, what was it trying to pull off? Well, you know what? I, I've. It seemed to me that this film was a Rorschach test for every viewer because it seems that there's so many different opinions about this thing. Uh, you, I, I think people form their opinions before they actually went in and saw it. Um, I, for me, uh, in my review, I thought that it was a plea for more mental health services. And I thought that was a point that most everybody missed. I mean, there's at one point where the characters said, yeah, funding cuts. You don't get your medicine anymore. No more counseling. Yeah, they spell it out for you. Like, yeah, this is it's a, a right theme there. In this movie, yeah. And I didn't think it was sensationalized at all as far as that aspect was concerned. I thought it was just, here's a guy who's on the edge. Here's a guy who's damaged. He needs help. And he does not get it. Uh, I was sympathetic for him. It was a movie, though, that I thought at times was brilliant, and then at times it frustrated the hell out of me. Example of a frustrate, a point of frustration? It, I thought it got redundant as well. Mm-hmm. This movie could have been a good 20 minutes shorter. Probably. We get the point. 
he's troubled. <laughs> he has problems. Yeah. We get it. I, I just thought that it could have used a tighter uh, pacing and rhythm too, and it would have been much more effective of a film. Yeah, it, it, I agree with that, especially in the middle third. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The last third in the climax and the, the scene with the show. I, oh, it works. I, I told the friend that I wanted to go see that with. I mean, truly at the end of it, I was not shaking visibly, but I was... I love when you go to a movie, you walk out, and whoever you went to see the movie with, you don't know where to begin. Not, and that's that could certainly be a bad thing. Like I saw the happening in the movie theater, the M Night Shyamalan <laughs> first rated R movie, and I walked out, and had nothing to say. But that's most of the time when I have nothing to say, it's because I'm trying to process my right. emotions and everything. Most of it, it you forget about by the time you get to the car. Yeah, and I, I just thought. As from a directorial standpoint, the way that they shot the moment, you know, yeah. the, the the brutal climax was so realistic, and it could have totally failed. Yes. Like the, the the stakes were so high, and you're like, wait, is this actually going to happen? They're telegraphing it, and you kind of know what's going to happen, and yet, and yet, I gasped. You're right. You know this is going to happen, and yeah, I actually let out an expletive when it did happen, and I was like, why am I? Why am I surprised? I, I told my friend, too, that there's this awful, it's a viral thing that's just, if you go in the deep recesses of the internet, Bud Dwyer was the Pennsylvania politician back in the 80s that on live TV shot himself, right? Okay. And this is, well, misdirection, don't, let, don't think that that's what Joker does, <clears throat> but the way it was shot, I just immediately flashed back to that, and I thought that, whatever buttons they pushed here, like I said, it could have been done in a very almost patronizing way. Like, uh, we're, this is bloodshed just for the sake of bloodshed. Right. I didn't get that. Neither did I. Uh, I because I think the film took its time. Too much time. But it did take <laughs> its time to show that this was not just an impulsive act, that there were reasons behind it in his mind. Uh, and, and no, I didn't find it cheap, cheap at all. I like how they tied it all into the Batman story. I thought that was much better than other attempts that I have seen. Not too ham-fisted, I don't think. Not too ham-fisted, but it made sense that what he does then precipitates all these other events. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I, I can live with that as opposed to the horrible blunder in the Burton film. Um, I, But, you know, a fact, again, the fact that we're still talking about this, and this is going to come back. I mean, once uh, Oscar nominations come out and he's nominated, this controversy will flare up a little bit more, especially if it gets a Best Picture nod, which I don't think it will. Yeah, pro doubtful. But do you think that because of the nature of that movie, he's not going to win? And, and my thought when I saw it was there's not uh, almost, you know, um, I said this with certainty, which is kind of a silly thing to do, but I'm like, there's not going to be a better performance than this. I don't think. But then again, I'm looking at it from a perspective of, this is a very uh, physical performance. It's and a committed performance. It is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the guy doing the quiet performance, and I've heard Adam Driver from Marriage Story, for example, a more quiet performance that is would be every bit as deserving, but in terms of spectacle and the physicality of it, I, I just can't imagine there being a better performance. Yeah. Well, and that's, of course, the silliness about the Oscars or any awards show. I mean, it's all apples and oranges. Right. And how do you determine one's better than the other? Uh, yeah, Driver's performance is very good. I've seen that film. But you're right. It's more introspective. Uh, De Niro more than likely is going to get nominated for and that's a more quiet performance. Mm -hmm. DiCaprio is going to be nominated, I would think. I don't think Phoenix is going to win, but he will be among the last five. Um, but again, you know, we've had some surprises in that area the past couple of years. Who can say? But it, more than anything, though, and the bottom line is, is this, that Joker hit a nerve. There was no question about it. Uh, and that needs to be paid attention to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I felt as I was watching it, I was watching something that was, I said to my friend, I called it like dangerous art. Like, should I be watching Completely. this? 
And I thought that's that's success. Dangerous art from a major studio. Yeah. That's what's unique. And now, this is what I love about the success of it, too, is that I know it is technically an origin story for a very famous villain. If it wasn't called Joker, it would not have made the money that it did. Sure, of course not. But at the very least, I think this opens up uh, the opportunity to instead of going the same tire direction with these superhero movies, finding really dark places to go. Of course, that could turn into a game of one-upsmanship. How dark can we get? How well, gritty can we get? Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you read comic books or follow them. Never have. Well, DC has, uh, just this past year, ha- started a offshoot label called DC Black Label. Okay. And it's all those types of stories in which they take characters and tell more adult-type things. And I think Joker is like that in the film division. They've, they've blundered completely as far as their movies are concerned. They, there's no way that they can replicate what Marvel does. So why not go this route, these one-off films with characters we know and giving us a bit more of a realistic critique? I, I think it's a great idea. They've got nothing to lose at this point. You mentioned DiCaprio for Best Actor, mm-hmm. and I thought DiCaprio is one of those guys that I don't want to say underappreciated because I think he's the highest paid actor in Hollywood, and no matter whenever he has a movie come out, it's a big deal. But, you know, for playing a sort of joke character of this aging movie star in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I thought, again, very affecting performance, a, a sympathetic guy who is kind of a jerk and a total loser, a total <laughs> drunk, and... uh that movie was one where I'm a Tarantino fan. I love Jackie Brown. I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because back to this idea of taking its time. Maybe it took too much time. But the second time I saw it is when I got into the rhythm of what he was trying to do and just enjoyed that movie for what it was, which I know Tarantino was, you know, picking and choosing influences from here and there and it's, you know, coming together in this weird sort of pop culture stew. But that movie in particular, I thought, that is one in 20 years that I'll be talking about with Tarantino much more than the Kill Bill series or Django or let alone Hateful Eight. I think that one will stand among his best work. I don't know if there's a question in there, but what what are... Well, let's start general. Tarantino, in your mind. I loved his first three movies. Okay. As you mentioned, Jackie Brown. Uh, and, that's my favorite uh, of his and you know Pulp Fiction of course and Reservoir Dogs there's a rawness there there's some there's obvious you see a filmmaker very quickly coming into his own very quickly and then I think he started to believe his own press and that's a problem I mean it's I don't mind a homage but it seemed to me as though he was just cobbling together so many other things that belong to other people and tried to make them his and uh, <sighs> He has a hard time suppressing his 15-year-old alter ego. <laughs> I can you see that, yeah. S- you see it in Hateful Eight, and you really see it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a movie that I absolutely loved the first two hours of. Hmm. And then he ruined it. I see what you're saying. Okay, so he that was, that's the turn where there's some people that say, well, God, the final act, at least that finally had a payoff to it. And I thought I would agree that the first two hours, especially the second time I went to see it, resonated far more. Yeah, um, I love the pace. I love that he took his time. I love that he immersed us in that world. And then the shift, the tonal shift in that last 20 minutes, it's like he's the 14-year-old boy saying, hey, look what I could do. <laughs> look at this. Isn't this cool? And it's like you ruined the whole thing. And the whole changing of history, I was offended by. Interesting. Okay. I was completely offended by that. That was an immature decision. The one thing I'd say is a counter to that is if it had ended 
immediately after the big, you know, stuff. And if you haven't seen that, there's just a, a yeah, big, big scene thing. and you'll know what it is, right? Um, and it is revisionist history and similar to Inglorious Bastards, which post Jackie Brown, I'd say Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time, those are the two movies I go back to the most. Django, talk about Overlong. That movie could have been, you know, 40, 50 minutes sh- shorter. I Christoph like. Waltz is the only reason you sit through that film. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, for Once Upon a Time, though, I thought that the very final scene had this sort of dreamlike quality and the falling action, if we want to call it that, uh, as I'm talking story arcs with my sixth graders, the falling action, the last two, three minutes of that movie and the conversation and the voice behind the gate. I know it's a little bit on the nose. That actually affected me in, in a way. I thought that that was such a great comeback down to this somewhat surreal, dreamlike finale. So I get where if, if they would have just ended with the bloodshed, let's call it what it is, then I, I totally get that. I think that the last three minutes of that movie, though, brought it back. Explain to me why. why I mean, yeah, why yeah. Why the revisionist stuff? Why? Oh, I see. So why the revisionist why? stuff? Well, I guess a kind of ham-fisted argument would be, well, you know, we're taking history back and, you know, we aren't going to glorify the monster or something like that, right? Or we're going to show what I interpreted it as, spoiler alert, is that we were showing these monsters that certainly swept the entire nation with fear, right? Even people outside of California right, were right, freaked yeah. out because it's 1969, the end of the uh, summer Free of love. love. Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these are you know products of the summer of love that could actually come and slit your throat and kill your whole family, right? I thought that by showing them as goons, similar to Hitler and his guys and Inglorious Bastards, is one way to deal with it one way to sort of deal with the horror of everything involved and that there is something cathartic. And one thing about Tarantino's violence that I've always appreciated is the cathartic nature of it. That is what I took from it. And not as someone that grew up and and at all experienced that, but even just reading about the Manson family and the effect they had on our culture that I thought was, I'm not going to say clever because I don't know if it is or not, but the cathartic nature is what I keep going back to with Tarantino's violence, including that scene. Okay. But I, I get that the tonal shift is just, whoa, you know. Well, yeah, I, and, you know, I, I don't have a problem with tonal shifts if they're done well. I mean, I just sat through Parasite a couple of days ago. <laughs> I've heard. The, the, yeah. the, the biggest problem I have is the alteration of the history because okay. I, I, I don't get it. I guess that we'll just chalk that up as a generational thing. Oh, that's okay. Because that fine. was my big objection to Inglorious Bastards as well. I need to ask you about a director because there's, it seems like horror movies are finding... There's actually some studios, A24 is one of them, that are letting directors sort of do this auteur thing where Mm -hmm. they can be a writer and director. And then the one that really sticks out to me is Ari Aster. Mm -hmm. Now, I had this weird fondness for Hereditary, which is just a brutal movie. But I have a fondness for it because I wanted to go see it the day that I got hired uh, as a teacher, I just got my interview done. I need to clear my head a little bit. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle of Hereditary, so, so. and it's like you're hot. I get a phone call during the middle of the movie, and I I know who it is, and they're like, "You're hired." I'm like, "Great!" Now back to this movie. Midsummer was another one of those where I walked out of the theater, and I kind of had this, you know, shitting grin on my face of this guy, this young director, knows how to push buttons and i even if it's maybe cheap a little bit i i like that i I like feeling like this guy is sort of um oh not quite ventriloquist or not quite puppeteer but they can kind of play with you a little bit right so ari aster with midsummer and hereditary two films in is this a guy to look for Is, is this a young director that you're interested in or um do these films connect with you i wasn't a fan of hereditary 
I did love Midsummer though. Uh, and definitely, he's definitely a guy uh, worth watching. And I'm glad for something like A24 that's going to give him the money and the distribution to do what he wants to do. Uh, they, more than any other of these independent studios or distribution arms, their track record is impeccable. I mean, for people to come up to me and say, wow, A24 has a new film coming out that, and that has yeah. happened. I'm like, wait a second. How do you know about that? Their their branding has been fantastic. It has. Uh, Hereditary. I thought, wow, we've gone through all of that for this. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't disagree. Yeah, I think the first hour and a half of that movie were far more. Talk about a clunky transition from family drama to. Yeah, yeah. I, I was expecting more, and I think the film was done a disservice by any A twenty four in a way because once it came out of Sundance and t- and the other uh, film festivals, they were touting this. And they were pulling quotes, you know, the scariest movie since The Exorcist, the scariest movie ever made. And it has its moments. It has moments. Truly unsettling. But then at the end, it was like something, ah, yeah, you, you did yourself a disservice in my mind by hyping it so much. Midsummer, they took another approach to. And boy, you, again, we were talking about cinema and the Hollywood product. This is cinema, again, taking your time, sucking you into mm-hmm. that story, that poor girl and everything that's going on with her. And isn't it interesting that you can make a horror film that takes place completely in daylight? And this is the elevator pitch, right? Yeah. We're going to make a horror movie, and it's all going to be in daylight, and yet and there were maybe, I don't know, a handful of scenes that were- They're in a building or right, something. In a yeah. building at night. But, um, and there's one moment, I mean, again, taking its time, it's probably a good hour into that movie when we see the first bit of carnage right it's right yeah and yeah. it just he i don't know if that movie's kubrickian and maybe i i keep i throw that word around i use it for paul thomas anderson which i feel like there will be blood is total like you know kubrick style stuff but, well not really because it's entertaining oh wow, <laughs> this is gonna be great i love it uh so for ari aster though i'm excited to see he said he's not gonna do uh, a scary movie next he's gonna try to do something and i'm like i'm in- intrigued but my God, like Midsummer in particular, I could not stop thinking about that. For me, the litmus test is usually, if you think about it for a 48-hour period, okay. I mean, most movies that are even decently done are going to have a little bit of staying power. If it's two weeks later and you have an image kind of burned in your brain from that movie or you just have this overall kind of feeling whenever you think back to, uh, for me, Midsummer was just unsettling. And the performances, I thought, were great. Oh, the girl, Haley Lou Richardson. I've seen her before in other things, knew that she had made a great independent film called Columbus. Okay. Uh, about Columbus, Indiana. A young woman stuck there. Uh, she just, you know, and that's the thing. I have to credit you know, um, Tony Collette and Miss Richardson. This act, this director puts those poor women through the yeah, this is This makes Kubrick uh, and Shelley Duvall look like. I was concerned. I, I, I've always wanted play. to ask Colette, did you take a month off afterwards? Did, well, how did you recover from this? And the same thing with this young lady. Uh, and how timely, how timely this film is about people blindly following a belief system mm-hmm. and not questioning it. Uh, hello. I mean, this couldn't be more <laughs> on the nose about what we need to be talking about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I love that about him as well. The, the quick turnaround too. Uh, and he might've had this idea in the bag for a long time. Maybe he had sure. a script ready to go, but I mean, a, a year later after hereditary. So I'm sure, I think hereditary had been sitting there for a while for a 24. They made the rounds and right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, they went to all the film festivals and right, got but, the advanced buzz. My God. I mean, for a follow up to be that ambitious and that large, in scope yeah but you know 
you could see how he could shoot it quickly. Yeah, that's true. And they could get it out quickly. There's no elaborate special effects. I mean, the post-production couldn't have been that rough. Uh, just the coordination of that. And he basically, I mean, he was in one location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so obviously he's a good planner as well. All right, we got to get into Kubrick then. I, I, because <laughs> I will tell you right now, and I even have a poster of Yeah, it. I'm looking right at it. <laughs> and last summer, they had the 50th anniversary yeah. of uh, 2001, and they mm-hmm. did the road show with the unmastered, unremastered, or Christopher yeah. Nolan, I think he called it that, all the cracks and pops on the screen. But it was the 70 millimeter, yes. I think? Right. So I went to Virginia Theater for a Saturday matinee. I had seen it, you know, countless times on Blu-ray, and even as a kid getting the, you know, um, pan and scan VHS from sure. Blockbuster. You didn't know any better. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember from a young age being like, I don't get it, but I'm intrigued. And then I would watch it more, and I'm like, I still don't get it, but I'm still intrigued. And sure. I keep going back yeah. to it every few years. In the theater, lights go out. There's the overture, all those great old-fashioned, uh, you know, Lawrence of Arabia has the overture right, that yeah. sets the mood, right? Um, there's something about that movie that if I think about my favorite theater experience, it would be that with about 20 other people in the theater, I got basically front row center for 2001 and just got immersed, saw the way it was intended to be seen. But you mentioned Kubrick and a lack of entertainment value in his films. I've never seen Barry Lyndon. Um, <laughs> and I, that would be one, I guess, but that would fall in that trap. Eyes Wide Shut has, you know, it is what it is. Full Metal Jacket is a good 30 minutes and then whatever. The Shining is great popcorn entertainment, I feel like, because of Jack Nicholson. But what is it about Kubrick that I've always felt his films are cold, and yet I can't stop thinking about them, yeah, despite yeah, that coldness? I, I, and you know, my, my, my statement earlier was kind of a cheap shot. I mean, obviously, the man was a master. Strange love. Strange love. Uh, and even even when you see something that he inherited, a studio product like Spartacus, uh, you still see touches. You can see, in looking back at it, you see things that he plants there that he develops later on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, his movies are cold. They're very cold. And it's funny. I have a Blu-ray set at home of his films, and I threw in The Shining a couple weeks ago to get ready for Dr. Sleep. And I didn't realize that the Blu-ray, Blu-ray set I had was from England, and it had the English cut of The Shining on it. How different is that? Ah, it's 20 minutes shorter, my friend. And better? It's strange. Hmm. I've My complaint is that, my complaint always with The Shining was that it was too long. I'd agree. And now yeah. seeing this, it doesn't work. The shorter version doesn't work. It doesn't work. So it, all that was necessary. It was necessary. And I had to eat a little crow with that because okay. the, the the madness that descends upon the Nicholson character seems to happen too quickly. Well, and I got to admit, even in the long version, Jack Nicholson is just... If I had seen The Shining without having seen him ham it up as Joker or you know uh, Randall McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's mm-hmm. Nest, if I had seen The Shining before four or five other Jack Nicholson, you know, screen... He, basically takes up the entire screen when he's in full jack mode right so i felt like in in the shining i never bought from the first time i saw it as much as i love that movie i never bought this idea that he wasn't crazy to begin with. well that was stephen king's objection to the whole film Mm -hmm. he knew he he's written extensively that he knew as soon as nicholson was cast it wouldn't work he said the tragedy of the story is a normal man who has pressures built upon him to where he's vulnerable to this. I don't know if you ever saw the remake. They did a remake. The TV miniseries. miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. I I liked it for For, what it was. For what it was, and I understand King's objections. The the thing, and this might be cheap on my part, is I look at the filmography, and especially when he's really been involved. I mean, Maximum Overdrive is an exception. I mean, whatever. Everyone gets one get-out-of-jail-free card. But that, for the most part, his films don't, his books don't seem to translate to film all that well and then we're looking at something that certainly is different than the novel 
It is. Oh, completely. But still very, I mean, god damn. Like, I mean, just as a film, I feel like it's great. Despite, and with all its flaws, of which there are many, but including the fact that you can't really sympathize with Jack Nicholson. Shelley Duvall does her best with it, and the kid is just the kid. I, I don't like kids in movies, and that's a whole thing, too. But The kid's quite good, I think. When yeah, you, as when good you as look at, be. You know, I just saw Marriage Story not too long ago, and the kid there, you you watch that, and then you watch the kid in The Shining and say, oh, okay, I see the difference, and boy, little Danny, you did a great job. Okay, all right. <laughs> but, you know, Kubrick... Yeah, yeah. I guess I never, I, I have, the, you know, it's funny. You were just describing all of his films and your reactions to them. And I agree with everything you've said. Uh, yeah. Full Metal Jacket, that first 40 minutes could be the best war film ever made. <laughs> could be. I, I mean, I, it's unreal. And then it just falls. There's That's one of those movies that it's like, all right, I've seen the best part. Yeah. And you would actually turn it 40 minutes, turn it off 40 minutes in and be fine. And another one that we forgot is Paths of Glory. Another great war great film. Great movie. Yes. You know, the whole anti-war message, which runs throughout both those things. Uh, and Clockwork Orange. I love Clockwork Orange, <laughs> but it's not one that I probably go back to all that much because it's just, you know. Well, you, you, you there are films you can admire. You know, you, you can't say you enjoyed them. There, that's a I great admire, way of putting it. I admire Von Trier's Breaking the Waves. I admire Von Trier's Antichrist. I'm not going to go home and throw them in the machine <laughs> after a rough week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and Kubrick's, Kubrick's like that. Um, you know, Shining could very well be his his most entertaining film. Probably, it's as close to a popcorn movie as you say as possible. And also, Barry Lyndon's not that bad. Okay, it's just God, please, something. Let's happened. move this along. Okay, please. <laughs> I mean, just looking at the stills, I get the. I mean, the whole thing where they shot with the what NASA lens, so they would never have to use artificial light. Right, the, and, it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. And Criterion Collection put out a uh, edition a couple years ago, and they really do a great job job with the transfer. Do you think his legacy is based much more on? I mean, I'm guessing his technical prowess. For someone that uh, there is a certain look that his films have, there are the tracking shots, which he sort of perfected, especially in The Shining, but even before that. It just feels like, God, even some of the the ways that he's framing things in Doctor Strange, Love in the War Room. It's a comedy, and yet it's just so grand in scope. Yeah, technical. I think it is technical from the visual point of view. He knew exactly where to put the camera every time. And it's... You know, you, you can tell the difference between a director that studied painting and a director who hasn't. A director who knows how to fill the fr- fill the frame, and he did. And he was a even photographer with, first, exactly for Time Magazine. E- exactly, even you know, and I mean, even filling the frame with nothing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was his greatest strength. Okay, all right. Kubrick is the one that again, it's certainly not about entertainment value. It's not about connecting with the characters. I couldn't tell you what Kubrick character I am most identified with because there's not one. Hal. Hal is the most human character in the entire thing. And and that was, I think, part of his point with 2001, yeah. right? Just the sort of, uh, there was the scene where one of the astronauts gets the happy birthday message. Yes. And just has no emotion to it, no reaction to it. I, I find myself, you know, almost tearing up when they kill Hal. He, he, you know, when he's singing the song. Well, Daisy. especially the the sound in that movie, or the lack thereof. Yeah. In that scene in the theater, a dark theater, 70 millimeter print right in front of me and being immersed in it, and you get that red, 
glare on your face as the breathing continues, the rhythmic breathing. <laughs> yes. And it just, I remember, I've like, I've never felt this tight watching and, it. And Bowman is absolutely vicious mm-hmm. when he comes into that frame. And, and Hal deserves it. I'm sorry, Hal. Yeah. But he, he is, I think, the most human. We have the most human response to him. Great book that came out last year just called, I think, Space right, Odyssey. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Making of it. One of the better. Boy, talk about minutia. <sighs> Everything you could possibly want to know. <laughs> Everything. I mean, the ape suits that they couldn't get right for, I mean, this was like a four or five year production. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that was him for almost all of his films. So I will say, I, I was going to give you a top five, and uh, top five directors in a representative movie. So for me, 2001, I'm putting at the top, which I know is cliche, right? I, no, I no, I mean, look, the guy didn't make many movies. Yeah, true. So well, there's I mean, that as well. 12 total, yeah. if that. And if, I mean, and really for him, and sort of like Hitchcock as well, I look at Hitchcock, and I've seen older ones like, okay, Strangers on a Train isn't even that old. Uh, Notorious, maybe. Oh. Um I have not seen 39 Steps. That's one that keeps getting thrown out there from Hitchcock fans. But for me, it's usually Rear Window after up to Marnie and then maybe Frenzy, right? So the like mid-50s through the end of his career. He is on such a tear there. I mean, you look at directors and, and there always seems to be that one era where everything, all the pistons are firing, everything's falling into place. And yeah, and it's funny. Those were the films that, you know, he controlled, those are the ones that he held the rights to. And I always wondered, he must have had a bit more say-so as to what was going on when you yeah. look at, uh, you know, like you say, Vertigo, uh, Trouble with Harry. Uh, obviously, Psycho, North by Northwest and Psycho are studio films. Back-to-back, 59 and 60. Yeah. And I, mean, <laughs> I mean, boom, boom, boom. It's, yeah. it's unreal. So Vert- and Vertigo was not really a big commercial success when it came out. So we have, I think, Rear Window in 54, Trouble with Harry after that. 56. Then there was one that I remember renting from Blockbuster, because again, this Hitchcock book I had had everyone. The Wrong Man. Henry Fonda. Yeah. Black and white, very yeah. film noir uh, from 56, I think. And that didn't get, I mean, we don't talk about that very much, but it was a great movie. Yeah, I don't think we talk about that one very much because it comes in the middle of this fruitful period. All the I, press goes to Vertigo and right. Psycho and North by Northwest. So, and, and then leading up, and Marnie was another one where certainly that was where the cracks maybe began to show. And it's a, a bit of a bore. Oh, it is a boring film. But, <laughs> I mean, I know what you're getting. I, I know what he's doing there. And quite frankly, I know this is going to sound like heresy. I think The Birds is pretty boring, too. Interesting. That one for me, it might have been the nostalgia of having seen it at a young age. That thing needs to move. Yeah, yeah. That I'd agree with that. There's, there, but there's just a couple signature shots. Oh, completely. Especially it's it's outside of the schoolhouse, the dead silence, and mm-hmm. the birds are just mounting on the on the power lines. And I just remember thinking, this guy, and like eight nine years old, and think this guy's a badass. Like this round British old man. He always looked old, yeah, and yet he just had this way to. Um, I'm talking about you know pushing the audience's buttons. Yeah. He in particular. So for me, five. I'm putting Hitchcock, Vertigo. I'll work my way down with Kubrick being one. Okay, so Coens, and the Coen brothers are interesting because I've not seen every Coen brothers film, but there are two in particular. No Country for Old Men, but I'm not going that because I've got There Will Be Blood Later, which I feel like those are kind of companion pieces in terms of setting, in terms of kind of I feel like the tone of those okay. movies yeah. is somewhat I see similar. Where you're headed. Okay. Fargo for me is just the perfect blend of great script, great acting, unbelievable music score. The visuals are just beautiful. That movie I could watch two, three times a year. I'd never get sick of Fargo. I know some say Big Lebowski. That's fun and quirky, but I I never revisit that. I always revisit Fargo. I don't know if that is placing that a little too high, but for me, I can't think of many films that uh, I, I don't know what the flaw in Fargo would be. Which might be a lofty statement, but 
you know, well, you're not alone. You're not alone. I know every uh, many people, uh, people I respect, are, are over the moon about that. I like the film. I don't think it's anything exceptional. Interesting. Okay. I mean, it's it's good. It's compelling. A nice little but, story. A nice little story. But I mean, you know, best film of the year. You know, bet. Yeah, you know, I I don't get it. I just don't get it. Okay. Uh, I love No Country for Old Men. I love True Grit. Not seen it. Ah. And I haven't seen the original either. Don't bother. Okay. No, don't bother. Uh, we can talk westerns in a bit because for me, uh, you mentioned John Ford earlier. Right, right, right. Now, he would have done Searchers. Yeah. Right? And Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? Yes. That one, for me in particular, what is it? Uh, 61. When, when you need to choose between printing the... Legend that, and the Truth. Legend and the Truth, print the legend. Legend, right, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. The Searchers, though, and not that John Ford isn't on this top five, but, I mean, talk about a guy with just, a, I mean, prolific would be one word. But that movie, John Wayne is just this utterly despicable. He's a bastard. Yeah. And and that kind of shocked me. I would not seen many John Wayne movies and I'd heard of The Searchers. So I'm like, I should check it out. Yeah. And then I watched it and I thought, <laughs> this is kind of a, this is a bold bit of storytelling right here. Wayne is fascinating when he plays a bad guy. Uh, you have to watch Red River as well and see him slowly lose his mind there. Okay. After making that film with Howard Hawks, Ford watched it and said, well, I didn't know the son of a bitch could act. <laughs> uh, because he he is completely against type there. Yeah. He starts off as the stereotypical cowboy hero and then slowly loses everything. Okay. Uh, he's great there. And yeah, The Searchers, I mean, you know, reams have been written about this film and rightfully so. I mean, visually. My God, it's it's it's, un- it's incredible. Yeah, so that's one that I would love to see at the Virginia on the you know because of the widescreen uh, shots that he had in there, but also just this the the subject matter of this man, this troubled, damaged man, and the journey he goes through, the, the, this obsession. I mean, that's daring stuff in mm-hmm. 1956. I mean, o- only Hitchcock is really delving into that as well about the same time yeah john ford i love the little thing you told earlier about how what you're gonna make another western but when you're that good at something why and and not that he to to say that is assuming that he's not actually exploring new themes and stuff within that genre i think genre can actually be an interesting kind of sometimes parameters and guardrails are good right and within those you can explore interesting things that haven't been done before well and i think that eastwood you have to look back at the westerns that he makes and you look at the journey that his persona how it changes over the course of the years is unforgiven that's one that i remember seeing i remember coming out my parents watched it when i was younger i had no interest in westerns a couple years ago went through a little bit of a western phase and found anything i could on netflix and unforgiven was one i'd never seen top to bottom and that was uh it's still 25 years later <laughs> almost 30 years it's 1991 i think yeah it's an astounding piece of work, uh, just on its own. But then when you recognize what he's doing right. I- as far as his character is concerned and how it reflects upon the other characters he's played in other westerns. I mean, The Man With No Name is a cartoon character, really. Though and it's a oh, fun cartoon. Oh, it's, oh it's fantastic. It's great stuff. But it's such a tonal shift from, from this character who is troubled, who is racked by guilt, who is apologetic. Uh, and, you know, it is as realistic as you're going to get. A daring movie yeah, great, and a film that saved film. his career. Think about that, yeah, because in the 80s he was floundering. He was. I mean, I think the movie he made before that was The Rookie. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was doing one for himself. Warner Brothers would, like, finance something like White, Heart, uh, White Hunter Black Heart, you know, arty film, mm-hmm. and then they say, well, you got to do one for us. So then he does The Rookie. Jesus, it has to be his worst film. What's the one with him, the monkey? Every which way but loose. But that's supposed to be kind of funny, though. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, it's, a fun it's, a, it's a lark. Great story about that. He sends that script to Burt Reynolds. 
because Reynolds had done things like that before. Mm. And Eastwood said to him, you know, I, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And Reynolds reads the script and he sends it back. He says, do this. And he says, if you do this movie, I'm going to make Dirty Harry goes to Atlanta. So Eastwood does this. It's his most <laughs> successful movie. When you look I at how much was, Wikipedia. when you it's read crazy. about how much it was spent compared yeah. to how much it was, a, and then two years later, Reynolds makes Sharky's Machine, Ugh. which is Dirty Harry goes to Atlanta. Oh my God! Okay, yeah, uh, I got Scorsese a three, and honestly, that I should probably flip him and Pete uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, but. I have Goodfellas slash Taxi Driver, and I have that because Goodfellas is the kind is the kind of movie that you could return back to once every couple months, and it is the breeziest two and a half hour movie ever made. I mean, just the to me, it, it still hits all the right notes. Um, it hasn't aged itself in sort of like oh, you can tell it was made in nineteen ninety. Uh, it's got this timeless quality to it. But then, you know, talking about Taxi Driver briefly earlier, and having watched that a couple weeks ago, that might be the one. From the Bernard Herrmann score, oh, his last one, right? Yeah, his last one. What yeah. a way to go out. Yeah. And just De Niro as, I mean, we think of Travis Bickle as this iconic character, and he certainly is, but he still underplays it. He yes. could have totally hand that thing up. Mm-hmm. It's still a pretty quiet performance. Yeah, and it's funny, we Paul Schrader, the uh, screenwriter of that, based that on The Searchers. Speaking of Paul Schrader. Uh-huh, my favorite film from last year? First Reformed. Goddamn. That... First off, I go to the art theater, which, uh, sorry, voice crack there. Go to the art theater, and it starts off, and there's the black bars on the left and right, and it's literally a box yep. format. Uh-huh. I'm like, well, this must be a mistake. Maybe it's a projection mistake. Mistake. took me about five minutes to get used to that, because I think the only other movie, I'd rented Persona by Ingmar Bergman, right? Yeah. Which I think is a similar yes. uh, aspect ratio. But once I did, which it didn't take very long, that movie, I thought Ethan Hawke should have won Best Actor. I agree. It was it was the best movie I've seen not only last year but in years. My God. and go back and watch that in relation to Taxi Driver. It's the same movie. It's the same story. Yeah. And Trader said he didn't realize it was the same until he was almost done with it. But he's done a lot of. His oh sure. MO has always been something. Not not saying he's derivative of himself. No, but, but I mean again, like Ford Scorsese, you you have those themes that you continue to explore again and again. Boy, we have had a lot wide-ranging conversation. We've been all over the place. Yeah. Here. Uh, back to uh, Taxi Driver. It, it is it is a film of its time, and yet it is timeless. Uh, yeah, I mean it re- it captures that New York City grunge thing. But if you've ever spent, you know, if you've ever felt lonely and feeling as though you're the only person there, I mean, that is really going to speak to you. It is. And, and it always will. And for a big city, I remember, oh, I've been in New York maybe six or seven times, and certainly it's different now. It's all, sure, Manhattan is up. very, yeah. right, you know, which, I mean, CBGB's is now a boutique shop, you know. And not that that was, even at the tail end of CBGB's, was the epitome of grime. And, you know, it's the mid-70s to mid-80s New York, where Grand Central Terminal was just this disgusting mess. And yeah, you're right. It is of its time. And yet this idea of being in a big city can sometimes be the loneliest place that there is just no connection with anybody and there's a scene where he goes in to the dirty movie himself and he's just trying to get the name he's trying to have a conversation with the girl behind the counter but understandably she's put off by it he just orders his snacks and goes in by himself and watches this movie and it's I thought that little scene, I remember, really hit me the last time I watched it. I thought, oh, okay. I see. And you see all those other lonely men 
in the theater right, as well. Right. And then when he has these conversations with the other taxi drivers, Peter Boyle, who was oh, in that's Everybody a great Loves scene, and and you can tell that Peter Boyle has no advice he can give him. He's he's a blowhard. He, he just he's, says, he's, "Well, he's, you got a job, and you do the job, and that's who you are." And there's nothing more he can help him with. Well, you know, and there's a correlation with Joker as well. There are these attempts by both characters to make connections. Mm. And they fail miserably. Uh, Joker in the, in, which has been in the trailer, but Joker in the bus trying to make a kid laugh. Right. And then the mom and the girl. takes issue with that. Yeah, right. the, the single mom down the hallway. Uh, they're both desperate characters. Uh, and, and there's a poignancy and a tragedy to the whole thing. Last one I'll mention is Paul Thomas Anderson and the way that his career is going. He's certainly doing whatever he wants to do. Yeah. I love the artistic freedom that he has. I mean, few guys have that where they can go into a studio and say, I need this much money. And they're like, fine, do whatever you want, even if it's not commercially viable. Uh, Phantom Thread, eh, fine, beautiful movie, uh, but didn't stick with me. Uh, the Master had its moments. Inherit Vice, given the source material, is going to be messy. I mean, I didn't get it, but few did. But There Will Be Blood is the one that it was, uh, I want to come out 2007, but I think it was early 2008 when Savoy finally got it down here and went on this, it was a blizzard. I had to actually get a ride to the theater <laughs> thinking, there's nothing else I can do today. And sitting in that theater, I just remember walking out and being like, I'm coming tomorrow. Yeah. I'm seeing that again. That was the kind of theatrical experience that I probably would not have gotten if I saw it the first time on TV. To me, that's the one movie, uh, along with 2001, that I continue to go back to and be kind of, it has this enigmatic quality that I can't exactly tell you why I love it as much as I do, but I do. Sometimes it's just a good story. Sometimes that's all you need, a good story told well. Uh, You know, you mentioned going to the theater and seeing it. And for all the great things that Netflix is doing, if you know, they are in a way preventing that from happening. We're going to have a generation of viewers who don't have that experience. They're not going to know what that means. And there is nothing like that. You mentioned 2001, seeing it at the I, I saw Once Upon a Time in the West over at the Virginia a couple years ago, and that was incredible. There's nothing like sitting there and making that discovery in the dark with strangers. Yes. And, and, and my fear is that that's all going to be gone. Uh, I remember seeing that at the screening room in Chicago with other critics, and rarely at the end of a movie is everyone quiet. Dead silence at the end of that one. No one talked for quite a while. Everyone was kind of, as you I'm sure were doing, just kind of taking it all in, digesting it. And I know we were all eager to see it again. Yeah, no, that 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 movie just hit me, hit a chord with me, and I think I saw it four times in the theater. And then it came. I mean, the day it came out, I remember driving to Walmart of all places. I'm like, I, I just need to get my hands on a copy of this. Rosie agrees too. She's not very happy about the uh, diminishing the uh, theater. <laughs> well, we need to get Rosie to the theater, darn it. That would, you know, hey, you want to get people to the theater? Let them bring their dogs. Yeah, no kidding. Go. Uh, the art theater in town. This is uh, a sad development, and. and you know, partly symptomatic of what's going on Very much. with the move from Netflix or the move from the theater to Netflix and streaming services. Um, the good news is that Netflix is bankrolling the Irishman. The bad news is that the Irishman, I'm not going to see in the theater. Well, they're, they're at a very strange position right now. Uh, they have to play those movies in theaters. Uh, in order to qualify for the Oscars, and that's what they want. They, for one month, they they have it out for one month. Right. They they want they that that's the whole that's what Netflix is about right now. I told you off the air all the money they're spending on taking critics out to see things and fet them, and they'll 
go anytime. Yeah, sure. But the f- ironic thing is, is that, yeah, they may be leading towards people not going to theaters, but the places where they have to show those movies are independent theaters. Uh, Roma from last year played up the art. That's right. And I was pretty sure that they would get the Irishman. It was going to be the only chance in town to see it. I thought that literally the day before the news came out that the art theater, I, I remember actually thinking, I wonder if I could call or just pop in and say, hey, do you guys know if you're getting the Irishman in November? And then next day, Closing October 31st. I have a feeling they would have because I've talked to Skip Houston, who runs the Avon Theater in Decatur, and he told me he was offered the Irishman. So if he was offered it, I'm quite sure that Champagne, that the art would have had a, had a crack like, at it. One more month, guys. One yeah. more month. Yeah. And, you know, and those are the types of things. That, that's the type of film. I mean, I don't know what the exact financial situation was at the art. Obviously, it was dire. Obviously, one big hit's not going to probably put them over the hump. Uh, but we're, we're lesser for that being shuttered. Uh, and I'm hoping somehow or another it's resurrected in some way. Yeah. Let's hope. Cause I mean, the minute that becomes anything other than a theater, there's no going back. Yeah. There's, there's something on, uh, I, I saw online, there's this gallery of all these abandoned or yeah, abandoned theaters throughout the nation. And I think there's hundreds of them, these beautiful, I mean, just gorgeous lobbies and you know, the double deck and everything. And, uh, whenever I go to the Virginia Theater, they'll have, fortunately, they'll still show movies and they'll do it yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. And I'm thinking, please, thankfully, that's part of the Park District. And I think that gives it a little bit more, um, kind of a little more safety than a place independent like the art. But uh, losing that and then all of a sudden, no offense to the two multiplexes in town. Unfortunately, they will they'll show like an A24 movie. I don't know if they would have shown First Reform, though. And they certainly no. didn't when no. it came out last year. Yeah, yeah. We're going to lose out on a lot. We're going to lose out on a lot. And really, your closest option at that point is going to be normal. Uh, the normal theater over there, they have uh, some new programmers of the last two or three years. And they are very good at what they bring in, especially most current things. But, yeah, who, I don't really want to have to drive 45 minutes no. for that theater experience. I have an idea. And if I could get a hold of someone at Netflix and they'd listen to me. But what you were just saying about the closed-up theaters, mm. if Netflix needs a venue to show their films which they need a month for anything that's oscar worthy, and right? none of the multiplexes are going to pick up on this netflix should go around and buy places like the art like these old abandoned places and reopen them redo them to their former grandeur and create their own theater chain that would be not only uh, solve their problem of showing them but don't you think cinema people would love that and oh. respond to that to go back to these old movie houses? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's it's a win-win if I can get whoever I need to get to on the phone <laughs> because obviously these folks have money to burn. Yeah, I was thinking either that or maybe the university coming in and saying this is going to be operated by the University of Illinois Film Studies or something like that. But it, what what is sad is that there is a not enough emphasis on promoting the arts. I mean, we see it in Champaign. There's not a single music venue in downtown Champaign right now. Or there, there's maybe one, one and a half, right? Uh, when there used to be a thriving music scene right. five, ten years ago. Uh, now for movies, well, guess what? The art theater is closed and, and our options are limited. And if you want to know why Scorsese is saying the things that he does about the Marvel movies, and it's not just the Marvel movies, no. by, by any stretch, no. but it is this transition away from letting filmmakers create something truly original and the public will get into it if you at least offered it to them. <clears throat> But yeah. they don't. Yeah, and, and they always write that article when that movie comes out, the, the small movie that everyone reacts, reacts to. Uh, there, is, there is a demographic beyond 17 to 24. There really is. 
Um, gosh, I have just lost my train. Of well, I, I'm thinking about one example. I didn't even like the movie that much, but Bad Times at El Royale. Oh. Okay. Kind of a mess, I thought. It didn't, didn't, but at the same time, I thought, you know what? They gave a director a lot of money to bring in the stars and try something. Maybe it didn't work. Um, I'm not going to go back and watch it again. But unfortunately, I don't know if it was commercially successful enough for them to do the same thing again. Well, something happened a couple weeks ago that I think is going to have long-term ramifications for major studios as far as making those budget-type movies. You know, any more of these studios want to spend $250 million and a chance to make a billion. The medium-budget movie has disappeared. And that's why I thought the Steven Spielberg thing about Netflix was kind of sour grapes. You know, he can get anything he wants financed. Pretty easy to be Spielberg, and he's earned it. But He's earned it, but he's forgotten about those people who want to tell more modest stories, that $80 million budget, that $60 million budget, and that's where Netflix has come in. That's where those filmmakers are going. And I have to applaud Netflix for that and thank goodness uh, for that or else we wouldn't have certain movies. But there was a movie that came out and left. It's already gone. Motherless Brooklyn. Yeah, that was Edward Norton's movie. Complete and total bomb. Yeah. Complete. I mean, he made the rounds gone. promotionally and it was in and out. Yeah. A period piece made by Warner Brothers. That ain't going to happen again for a long time right. because this movie failed to connect. Uh, I wasn't a fan of the film. But I didn't want this to happen <laughs> yeah, right, because yeah. other better films made within that era and in that price range, it's going to be hard for anyone to, to rubber stamp them other than Netflix. And uh, we'll see, you know, I wonder, is Disney going to get into making their own films? Probably not. Mm -hmm. But I mean, all these other streaming services, are they going to dip their toes into producing their own, con own content as Netflix does? Uh, one last thing. You mentioned Spielberg. And then you said the middle level director is looking to make something more or middle budget, you know, mm -hmm. modest films. And it's odd that for me, Spielberg, he's done a lot of these more kind of modest or adult movies, if you want to use a kind of blanket term. <laughs> but one modest movie, and it probably still had a hundred million dollar budget, was Bridge of Spies that came out a few years mm -hmm. ago that mm -hmm. I thought was just a really good flick. And yeah, I could see good. myself going back to it at some point um but that yeah you can do more with less and it just seems as if for me if i look at the movies i mean the ones i even listed to you and in terms of budget even if you adjusted for inflation yeah 2001 was certainly a behemoth yeah um but for the most part these are not um and i love a good action movie i love star wars you know yeah. i mean it's it is what it is well i think that if you're a filmmaker who's around for a while you get bored you know, and I, I'm sure that dinosaurs don't appeal to him anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, so he is going to this more adult fair. Uh, I can't figure out West Side Story. That's peculiar. I cannot figure Why it out. Why would you remake what is already... And I don't even like musicals, but that movie is... Don't touch. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's going to put some sort of modern sensibility yeah, yeah, on yeah. it. But I again, if if I can make any movie I want, I'm I, I'm not doing that. No, that doesn't I don't make sense. quite get it. A so, modern, I mean, an updated retelling of Lawrence of Arabia. Not to compare Lawrence of Arabia and West Side Story. Yeah. Not to do that, but even pick another musical, I guess. And, I, I mean, most of his movies I like, so I will reserve judgment. But uh, I, it seems a curious choice. Okay. Uh, last question uh, would be two genres that sometimes are overlooked. I mentioned horror earlier with Ari Aster. There's a film critic, Mark Kermode, uh, from yeah. the BBC. Yeah. Really fun to He's watch. He's very smart, man. Yeah, and he is very um, very clear about this. He says, the best movie ever made is The Exorcist. And he's written about it, and he's done a documentary. I have his books. Right, and I recently we rewatched it, maybe two months ago, and as a kid, I remember seeing the bonus footage of the spider walk and that freaked me out. <laughs> but he was right to leave it out of the movie because it didn't. At that moment early on, it would have just completely 
kind of thrown the build that they were going for, right? Uh, but I understood what Mark Kermode was talking about because that really is a fantastic movie, just as a film, right? Yeah. Um, but horror movie, comedy movie, one of each genre that you find yourself going back to because it seems like those two genres, they aren't going to win Best Picture. No. they are, And, and they rarely are in discussion for great films. Um, well, with some can, exceptions, with some exceptions, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original Toby Hooper is unreal. Yeah, it's it's unreal, almost documentarian. And that's what makes it work. Yeah, it, it is as close to being a realistic. You, you, I feel as though I'm with them. I feel as though I am sweating in that van yeah. in Texas. I, I can smell the smells. I'm uncomfortable with them. But there's that cinema verite thing that he has going there that really drives home the horror of that situation. Mm-hmm. And the thing I love about that film is is, is the restraint, which sounds odd. But Not when much you go, blood. You go back and you watch that movie. It is a master class of editing mm-hmm. and camera movement and camera placement. It's not gory. It's, it, it's not gory at all. It's suggested. And that's why by the it's, name alone, exactly. <laughs> it's a, he, one he of the set, best titles ever. He sets you up going in, and, and and it's all just stuff that he suggests, and your mind finishes it. That's why you put that one uh, in the same category as Halloween mm-hmm. and the Blair Witch Project. They're masterfully made films. The most I, I always admire someone who doesn't have a lot of money is not going to use CGI. Just here, go make a movie, and they come up with something like that yeah absolutely so texas chainsaw massacre i always go back to again and again as as a horror film and i also love the universal horror films i can't get the old frankenstein oh god they're incredible they're incredible comedy i'll give you a couple wow you know i for me this is spinal tap which just recently played at virginia um not all those mockumentaries are my favorite but this is spinal tap just and it's the musician and me probably talking the one i go back to that i actually (laughs) think is a good movie as well not just like nostalgia for when it came out when when it was an snl skit the original wayne's world Mm -hmm. it just stands up it's 80 minutes long it's just all the jokes still hit even though some of them are certainly of its time but to me it is wayne's world it's uh this is spinal tap and then if i were to throw uh you know more of a film buff thing dr strange love is still really funny oh yeah yeah um the marx brothers still make me laugh i've never seen a marx brothers what what would i start duck soup or something like that Horse feathers. Okay. They're, they're in college, and that's all I'm going to say. All right. Uh, you know, I'm not a big comedy person. When you look at my shelf, it's, you know, I, I think I'm funny. I don't have many. I like, you know, you know but I love the Marx Brothers. I love, uh, I love Will Ferrell. I think he is really smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stuff he does, you know, it seems childish, but it's not. Anchorman, the dog punting scene was one of the tears down my face which i you can count on one hand the times that you've or crying with laughter in a movie theater but that for me was one i think one of the most brilliant comedies made recently was tropic thunder yes yeah. that film i mean there's a lot going on there think about a and studio it is hilarious a studio financing that too. yes exactly nowadays i mean, I mean it, 10 years later that's not gonna be yeah. made and not not just because of the budget issues but i think the way that especially twitter has kind of accelerated this you can't do that there's yes. no way oh, Robert yeah. Down- Robert Downey Jr. is going to be able to play that role or anything and he similar. Was, he was Oscar nominated for that right, role. Right, as he should have been. Oh, he was incredible. Incredible. As a music person, I'm going to throw one out mm-hmm. at you. It was criminally underseen. My son and I watch it repeatedly, and we love this film. Pop star. Never seen it. That's the Andy Samberg one, right? <laughs> never Stop, Never Stopping. It's unreal. But I have seen <laughs> one that is actually really funny of his was Hot Rod. Yeah, he's funny. It, Do got you not watch Brooklyn cast. Nine-Nine? I don't. Oh, 
He's really smart. Okay, so He's really smart. if I liked Hot Rod, I'm guessing I'd like pop star. Well, especially with your your uh, interest in music, okay, and how it just skewers the modern music industry. Okay, it, it's fabulous, and it has a Michael Bolton cam- cameo wow. at the end. So yeah, star power. Yeah, yeah. So check. You got two movies to watch. Okay, okay. Pop star Ho- and, and True Brothers. Grit. Oh, True Grit and, and Horse, Horse Brothers. Brothers. Yes, okay. I can. I can do that. Coen Brothers. Uh, Marx, Marx Brothers, Brothers and Andy Samberg. Yeah. All right, that's a pretty good one, two, three. Yeah. Well, this was fun. I'm, yeah, I, it was great. I, I love talking movies. I found myself probably early in this podcast. This is the non-film critic in me trying to talk analytically about movies, and then I, I can stumble over my words sometimes. Look, everyone's a film critic. You know, everyone's opinion matters uh, because we all come from different places. Uh, and, and that's why I love talking about movies with, with, with a lot of people, especially someone you know as smart as you are. Because you're not just sitting there watching. You're, you're taking like the Like uh, the Chris Farley, Chris Farley show thing. Like, that, was cool. that was great. <laughs> Remember the time? Remember when the you- time? <laughs> where, where can we find your stuff? Because we got written stuff. We got uh, video. We got news. Yeah, I'm like a uh, dog you're poop on your shoe. Okay. shoe. I'm all over the place. Uh, you can find me... At Real Talk with Chuck and Pam, that's R-E-E-L, Talk with Chuck and Pam. That's my website with Pam Powell. She's another film critic that I have teamed up with. We do spots at WCIA on Thursdays at 4.30 and Fridays at 7.40 a.m. And then, of course, the News Gazette and the Illinois Times. Uh, But, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's always a lot going on. Excellent. Well, this was fun. We'll do it again. Because, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, and not just for bye weeks or anything. I, I love talking movies, and uh, I will have horse feathers, duck soup, and pop star consumed by the next time we talk. True Grit, too. Oh, wait, wait. That's right. Yeah, True Grit, too. True Grit. And Coen Brothers, not the original. You can watch Duck Soup, too. Those movies are 70 minutes long. That's the thing about Marx Brothers movies. There's a great podcast that Gilbert Gottfried does where he's really focusing on, first he mentioned the Universal Monster films, movies, yes. which he is a huge fan of that. And then Mark's Brothers, of course, that's mm-hmm. his thing. But uh, he has a bunch of these old timey movie guests on. And I've tried listening to his podcast. The Voice? It's hard. No. Oh. Getting through all of the advertisements and the stuff at the beginning, I'm like, what am I doing here? Yeah. Yeah. Cut it out there, Gilbert. I know you got to pay <laughs> bills, but come on, man. Uh, Chuck Oplinski, Real Talk. You can find on Facebook, you can find Mm -hmm. on Twitter. Yep. And then, of course, WCIA 4.30 on Thursdays and 7.40 a.m. on Fridays. Yep. All right, awesome. Chuck, we'll talk soon. You bet. Thank you. All right, 200 Level Course brought to you by DP Doe. We we see we have sponsors like Gilbert Guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) DP Doe, order online at dpdoe.com. Fourth and Curvy for all your vintage Illini apparel and State Farm agent Brian Hansen. Thanks to IlliniInquire.com and Champion Showers Podcast Network for their partnership in the relaunch of the 200 Level. We'll be back next week. See you then. Chuck, thanks again. You bet. It is the 200 level.